1: Hey everybody, Patrick Connor here, and welcome back to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. I'm here with my dude, Eris Pino, who's of course a box operator, but also, more importantly, far more importantly, history dude like myself. Eris, what's up, man? How are you? How's everything, my man? Doing all right, dude. You know, I'm freshly shorn, kind of in, in a way. Um, I'm I'm recovered though, dude. You know, I was sick for a little bit, and I'm finally kind of feeling it again. So we had to come back, had to talk some history. Bro, I'm, I'm
0: pumped. Ooh, it's been a long time, bro. It's been a minute. I'm glad you're feeling better. I'm glad that we're uh, able to come back on it, and um, it's gonna be a good time.
1: Hell yeah, dude. I mean, uh, this is actually something that we've been wanting to talk about for a, for a while. I mean, it's it's a, a little bit of a cross pollination between the true crime stuff that we've done, but also just the history and also heavyweights because heavyweights are always fun to talk about. But I mean, I, th- I think that also something that we like to talk about in general is we don't like to just rehash the exact same shit that everybody's always talked about before, but we sometimes like to just kind of go off on our own, talk about other stuff. And I guess you can kind of think of this as more of a just a discussion, then we're not really trying to teach anybody anything, but we're talking about the kind of lost era of 1950s heavyweights.
0: Absolutely, man. You know, in all the previous episodes we've done talking about lost heavyweights and so the eras and things like that, we primarily focused on the 80s, you know, and those are easy to talk about. Like, look at the subjects that you got there, whether it be Greg Page or Michael Dokes or, you know, whoever it may be, like, they all got some complicated stories and it all weaves into an um, interesting narrative. But the 50s are kind of overlooked. For one, for instance, for one reason... um. It's the fifties, you know what I mean? We're talking back like going now back over something 70 years almost now. So it's like it's a very long time. A lot of the people that were involved back then have since passed away. And even though there were some all-time great fighters from that era, like you know, Floyd Patterson and other heavyweights around and yada 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 and you know, even lower divisions, it's just such a long time ago that people, especially on Twitter, you'll hear tend to talk about, oh man, it's such a long bygone era, blah, 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 blah. Like they just kind of shit on it a little bit, right? But Regardless, it was a very interesting time, and probably not for the best reasons either. You know, the heavyweight division was kind of in the doldrums after Rocky Marciano retired. Um, as since what usually happens when a prominent guy who had carried the mantle, extremely popular with the American public and the world in general, retires, um, the next person in the line is has a lot of um, shoes to fill. So that's kind of what was ending up happening over here. You know, the last guy to challenge Marciano was Archie Moore. Long-time light heavyweight champion, a little long in the tooth, even though you wouldn't know it. The guy was still fighting marvelously up until close to 50, but still, you know, he was the prohibitive, still number one consensus contender for the heavyweight championship. And then on the other hand, you had Floyd Patterson. Um, young speedster, dynamo, um, custom auto prodigy out of New York, uh, Olympic gold medalist. And besides having a slight hiccup against Joey Maxim, it dominated more or less everybody that he's fought. And um, so, yeah, that was the two guys that were going to match up for the title.
1: It, it's funny because that's often how the heavyweight division is like uh, th- either thought of or how people kind of mark different eras or whatever, often by whoever's the champion or whoever the popular champion is or whatever. And so you can kind of go through the eras that way, you know, in the especially in the wake of like, for instance, Gene Tunney defeats Jack Dempsey, and then when Gene Tunney retires, it's... For several years just kind of a scramble like a vacuum of power or whatever and nobody really emerges as that singular popular or really good heavyweight champion until joe lewis comes around and dominates for a long time over a not very good division blah 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 you know but then finally when rocky marciano comes about and he's popular i mean his style's not gonna last he's a brute force guy who takes a lot of punishment. And then on top of that, he's got a series of nagging injuries. There's rumors about mob ties and, you know, mob involvement, not wanting him to go forward. And then on top of that, you know, the, the remnants of the international boxing club of New York and whatnot, still trying to get their hand in the heavyweight championship. And so when, when Rocky Marciano retires again, a big vacuum of power, And it it left uh, a division kind of wide open. And even after uh, Floyd Patterson, you know, that kind of there's a a chunk of time between Rocky Marciano, the end of his reign, and Floyd Patterson and the end of, you know, Floyd Patterson's reign or whatever. uh, Even so, like a lot about Floyd Patterson was questioned to the point where people felt like he left the division wide open. Despite the fact that he defended the title, it was often against dudes who just were not up to snuff.
0: Exactly, and that's what we're getting into today. So it's like back then when Patterson wins the championship, um, he knocks out Archie Moore in five rounds. And I believe you can confirm this. That might have been like a slight upset, right? Was Moore a favorite in that fight?
1: Oh, I'd have to look. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he were like slightly favored or something like that.
0: But regardless, Patterson thrashed him, and that was really impressive, you know what I mean? So Patterson becomes champion, and um, yeah, like you said, with customato at the mantle, um, D'Amato was a very interesting you know, character in himself. You know, A lot of people, obviously, if you're listeners for the show, you know his history and his background, but um, most people will know him more so, especially... Kind of
1: idolize him, you know, probably yeah, a bit know, too much.
0: <laughs> absolutely. He's one of those guys that over the years have like sort of his his persona and his like because because of the people he brought to the man, especially with his relationship with mike tyson you know being of the course. nurturing old guy that like rescued him and um adopted him and then cultivated him and nurtured him and become
1: masterminded or
0: whatever exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so it's easy to, to to find that narrative but like dudes like the motto or even to an extent jack Doc kerns um in the past who over the years, his character has been made, made so that he was just like an old rascal who was just in the thing.
1: He was just a fucking drunk who just happened to be there, bro. You know? Kurt like, <laughs> <Kendal's> a piece <laughs> of shit
0: human, alright? And I think even today uh, he knew about like people trying to spin it, that he was just like an old guy trying to spin you know, whatever he was trying to do. He'd be like, no, man, I knew I was Yeah, asshole.
1: He, he had Mickey Walker wrapped around his finger when Jack Dempsey was done with him. He, he just got lucky. <laughs>
0: dude when Dem- before he died his last thing he did was that make made a declaration that he loaded dempsey's gloves and all this other oh, stuff such there, a man.
1: dick i know <laughs> it, and Sports had to illustrated with- too so it's like yeah. everyone was like see how legit that is even now people are like dempsey loaded his gloves it's like oh no but anyways
0: damato um
1: yeah he, he was very sly he knew what he had with patterson
0: and what he had was a young, precocious champion who, even though he was young, he super fast, had extreme power, explosive, yada, yada, yada. He was also very small and kind of fragile chin. You know what I mean? He could be hurt, whether it was on the chin, whether it was the top of the head, temple, wherever it was, Patterson got hit in the head, he went dropping somewhere. <laughs> and so at, during that point, um, when, like you said, when Marciano retired, there were a lot of hungry, young, very talented heavyweights out there chomping at the bit for a shot at the title. And Demon wanted nothing to do with any of them. Absolutely nothing with any of them. Because Auto had nothing to do with any of them. And what he did to um to make sure that they couldn't even snip near the championship, unless there was a guy that he knew was an out and out shot to beat um Patterson to win, was um say that they had mock ties. Which, which, which So any fighter, whether it'll be guys that will bring up in a minute like Cleveland Williams, um, Eddie Machen, Zora Foley. You know Valdez, like, list goes on. If you were talented like they were, Custom Auto found a reason why they couldn't fight Patterson. And mostly, again, those guys were the mob. Mob, 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 mob. Even though, funnily enough, D'Amato had his own mob ties himself and was, you know, checked out and all this other stuff. So get out of here. You know what I mean? It was just easy to do it because it was still during the era when the mob was still heavily involved in boxing. Yeah. I mean, you know, when Patterson became champion, it was still before the time when still probably what almost a full decade before John Jordan became welterweight champion and Frankie Carbo and everything, you know, got exploded. So
1: it, it was around, it was, yeah, a couple of years later was when it really started to go down. Mm-hmm. Um, like it, it, they were already under investigation and everybody already knew there were several reporters and writers who had written about the IBC and were like, you know, uh, I can't remember off the top of my head who it was who had, uh, Made up the the nickname, calling them Tentacles Inc. because of how many, you know, how far they had extended throughout the Midwest and the East Coast. In in any case, um, yeah, I mean, they, that was a couple of years away when it was really going down with uh, Kayfavor and yeah. and whatnot and whatnot. But in any case, uh, there was a lot of moving parts, a lot of shifting parts, and like you said, Custom Auto himself. Now, especially in hindsight, man, there was a lot of weird shit going on. Weird shit going on with him and Patterson. Uh, you know, the way that he treated Patterson and talked about him. He was talking about he was like sleeping in the same room with him, you know, moving his bed against the door so nobody could get in. And I mean, you know, I whatever. Dude, I don't know what the fuck was going on. I'm just saying it's weird. But then, you know, on top of that, when you add on to all of all of the stuff that he was always accusing everybody of and basically using that as a way to shield his fighter, like, in a way, it's like, yeah, uh, as, a, as a manager or whatever, he did his job. He protected his fighter. He made sure that his fighter was probably a heavyweight champion way longer than he really should have been. But in any case, yeah, it's especially with so many decades in hindsight now, we already know that his... It was strange. It was a strange situation for sure. But meanwhile, there were the, there was this entire division. Um, and especially when you look at Floyd Patterson's record, like he was fairly inactive as a champion overall. Like, I mean, when you consider his age at the time and especially the, the guys he could have been defending against, um, you know, the, the Johansson trilogy wound up taking up so much fucking time. Uh, you know, meanwhile, then an entire division just sat there. So one of the guys, uh, I mean, I guess he's probably the easiest guy for us to talk about because we've been meaning to bring this guy up for a long time, but one of the guys kind of waiting in the wings that was just motoring on in the meanwhile was Cleveland Williams. And we've briefly talked about him on another show. Uh, probably, I think it was the heaviest punchers show because the dude could just Absolutely, bang!
0: Monster.
1: But that's that's one of these kind of lost uh 1950s heavyweights. Of course, he's more known for his loss to Muhammad Ali, which is truly unfortunate. But then, of course, beyond that, the next thing is getting pummeled by Sonny Liston because in that both fights, like yeah, in 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 all of those fights, he just wound up looking like physically poor. <laughs> like you know, he's like getting wrenched around and like twisted and flopped around so when when that's what he's remembered for you know it's unfortunate because he had an entire career and, and, and a really interesting story apart from that
0: absolutely man cleveland williams is a fascinating fascinating character and like you said pat he's most known for being the b-side you know the victim of um what's most commonly known as muhammad ali's finest performance uh people consider that Ali's finest performance in the ring, the Cleveland Williams fight. A lot of people do. And the reason being is because, well, Ali looked absolutely flawless that night. You know, not, no one before or since then, for that matter, have you seen that type of, like, blend of speed and power as a heavyweight in one setting? And kind of the reason for that, too, is, like, Cleveland Williams might have been the perfect victim for that. He was completely shotsy. Bless you. He had absolutely no... um yeah, no right whatsoever being in the ring that day. Like, I think it was almost like a pity shot for him just being a contender for so long over the years that they gave him a chance. He was still very popular himself. But, you know, fighting Ali at his peak, Williams, even in his prime, wouldn't have had a chance. And so, like, yeah. You know, the most famous thing that most people are known for is that famous, famous photo by um all-time great photographer, uh, Neil Leifler, where the overhead shot of, um was it Houston Astrodome? And then you see Williams laid out there like, you know, a mm-hmm. murder man, laid out splattered, <laughs> at least standing over, over him, just kind of hovered like. But no, a guy like Cleveland Williams, he had a long, crazy story career before then. And one that was, I don't want to say mismanaged too much because he was built up pretty well and he had a pretty, you know, good record because um, he was on the circuit like that. But just a guy that never got the opportunities of the deserved. You know what I mean? He had a lot of bad luck come to him which we'll discuss in a second.
1: Just a really physically imposing looking dude, good looking guy, you know, a very good looking man and just like an Adonis body uh, to the point Jordan,
0: where you didn't see that too often.
1: If, if you were, I, I could imagine you're looking in the ring across from a dude who looked like that. You'd be like, Yowza. <laughs> like This is, this is no good. But you know, obviously, I could see how that could be intimidating, but on top of that, you know, um, I okay, starting kind of from the back from the beginning, as far as uh, his his story where he started or whatever, he said that he began working at a pulp wood mill when he was 13, and that's why he got built like at a fairly young age. He said that he was really tall and really built as a teenager, um, but that's how he kind of got developed in a pulp wood. Is just like like a sawmill or whatever, like paper or wood that's meant to be turned into pulp for paper. And so, uh, you know, in the Pacific Northwest up here, whatever, there's remnants from a bunch of mills everywhere. But it's tough work. Uh, It's dangerous work working around a bunch of fucking massive trees and logs and shit because, I mean, you know. Anyway, how you can imagine, like, basically where the logs go, you go. And if shit gets fucked up, you get fucked up. And so you have to be fairly strong to deal with a lot of this stuff. He wound up developing a lot of strength, a lot of muscle. And then he also said that at the pulpwood mill, that's where he learned how to fight. And he developed what he called his pulpwood punch, which was a mixture of, like, a hook and an uppercut. And then he also said later that he developed a boat punch. He called it his, his right hand. He called it his boat punch because later on his manager had a boat that he wanted. So he <laughs> wanted to knock Ali out with the right hand. He called his boat punch. But um, yeah, he actually uh, a fairly interesting thing about him was that earlier on he was managed by a dude named Lou Viscusi. Um He was uh, this dude was at the time based out of Florida but a couple of years earlier, he had managed Joe Old Bones Brown. Um, and along with – he worked alongside uh, a trainer. Um, gosh, what was his name? I wrote it down. Bill Gore. Bill Gore was the trainer. And he also – Bill Gore wound up training Cleveland Williams years later too. But Joe Old, Old Bones Brown was for a long time handled by Lou Vascusi and Bill Gore. They worked kind of in tandem and so that's who uh, supposedly Cleveland Williams kind of found his way to. He worked his way over to Florida and went to work for Lou Viscuzzi. And that's who handled him for a long time.
0: Yeah, like you said, you know, um, to go back a little bit, when Williams first started working in the in the paper, in the in the pulp mill, you know, cutting down the trees, stuff like that um, during their break. Instead of just sitting back and eating, you know, a sandwich and smoking a cigarette like most people, my like most working stiff's would do back then. Him and uh, Williams and the rest of those guys, they said would make an opening in the field and brawl. Fifteen minutes—that's what they had. Fifteen minutes, they go around, they just beat the shit out of each other. You know what I mean? And then go back to work immediately afterwards. So, I guess that's where Williams developed his punch. But um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: I mean, if you're just, like, fighting your co-worker, I mean, fuck, I don't know. That'd be kind of cool, actually. <laughs> you just got some if beefy. You got a
0: couple, like, if you got beef with one of them that you really want to punch him in the head, you know what I mean? You can do that on a break and know you're not going to get fired for it. Okay. You know, different times back in the 40s, bro. <laughs>
1: yeah. Dude, I mean, shit was going down. It was going down.
0: Especially down in, like, the rural South area where Williams grew up with things they just, no one really gave a shit. <laughs> yeah. So, but, like you said, well, Williams moves on to Florida early on, and as he hooks up with Lou, uh, how do you pronounce his last name again? Because I'm going to mess uh,
1: up. I think it's, I'm pretty sure it's Viscuzzi.
0: Viscuzzi, okay. As he hooks up with Lou Viscuzzi, um, he goes on the circuit. And back then, like you said, Viscuzzi also had uh, Joe Brown and others. So when Cleveland Williams goes on the circuit, he can fight guys in New Orleans. He fights in Miami, here or there. You can build up, it's easy to build up gaudy records doing stuff like that, you know what I mean? Anybody can build up a knockout record, and Williams did just that. But he was also – but, I mean, he was not only just kind of, you know, going either going the distance or knocking these guys out in four or five rounds. Like, he was blasting these guys left and right. Like, no one was lasting around with him. And even though he was really raw and unkempt and didn't really know how to, like, actually box too much, raw power and just his ambition, and him just being a maniac, was getting him through everything. And, yeah, he became a hot commodity pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, he um, you know, I I think I've said this before and I said it like on the biggest puncher shows and stuff like that that we've done. Um it's easy to dismiss like when punchers are knocking out stiffs and stuff mm-hmm. like that and it's easy to say, "Oh, well, yeah, of course he's like 25 and 0 with 24 knockouts, but it's a bunch of stiffs or whatever." And I always say like, "Yeah, I mean, don't don't mistake don't don't mistake something, you know, for like, don't believe that it's something that it's not, you know, if a guy's not really knocking on anybody good, don't mistake that they are. But at the same time, knocking out a whole bunch of stiffs is still tough. And that's still indicative of some serious power. And so, you know, the same thing goes for, for Cleveland Williams and for just, uh, just about any big puncher in boxing history. You know, you look at Archie Moore's record. Yeah, dude, he knocked out a lot of dudes who sucked course, you know, uh, Sandy Sadler, every, every massive puncher. Yeah. Young Stripling, you know, every, every massive puncher or knockout record kind of, you know, guy or whatever, knocked out a bunch of stupid ass shitty opponents. But, <laughs> but even so being able to do that is still indicative of some pretty big power. And that's what you saw. But then of course, what winds up happening with Cleveland Williams is that uh, is eventually you know, the cream does rise to the top and eventually as he starts fighting better and better opponents, you do see a little bit of a curve.
0: Absolutely, and the first guy he runs into with meaning of that curve is um old pro and again, another massive, massive puncher, but a guy with an unreliable chin from that era <laughs> off Siderfield. And um, Siderfield, the old gun singer from back in the day, dude, he, you know, if you remember that movie that Samuel Jackson played in, that's clearly the most recent time Siderfield has been mentioned in like modern times in terms of boxing but back in the 40s and 50s man Satterfield was fun as shit to watch that dude was just a wild bait like you knew you were in if he was around today and he was um an active fighter he would be on television often whether it be pvc or the zone or whatever may be. he'd be on every thing because he was made for tv guy was just
1: yeah, it was killer and killer be killed, dude. <laughs> yes.
0: And it always was with him. You know what I mean? A massive, massive puncher. Anybody that got in the ring with him knew that they had to be on their best behavior. Otherwise, they can get their head knocked off. But he couldn't take a punch to save his life either. So like you said, if he wasn't going to take you out, chances are you were going to take his ass out. And that happened often. But when he met up with um, Cleveland Williams, Cleveland Williams, like I just said, he was still very raw. He was still young. And he had knocked off a bunch of just stiffs at this point. Satterfield was not a stiff even though he was you know on the back end a little bit and he couldn't take a great punch he was still world's levels above anyone that Williams had even fought close to at that point so that being said Satterfield stopped him easily in three rounds
1: yeah and I mean it's nothing uh nothing to be ashamed of or whatever it is something also that we see sometimes with punchers like I mean I've seen it uh uh like the puncher's curse and stuff like that, where you know, you're you a big puncher, but don't have a great chin. And that's often, that has been the case for a bunch of big punchers, obviously not always. For a bunch of big punchers, it has kind of been the case though. And that is, you know, unfairly in some ways how Cleveland Williams gets remembered, gets knocked out by Satterfield Um, But also kind of has a a nice chunk of time where, again, he's mostly knocking out a bunch of stiffs or guys who are kind of like second and third Raiders and stuff like that. But eventually, you know, eventually if you were in the late 50s, early 60s, you were going to run into a dude named Sonny Liston. And there was a really good chance that it was not going to end out well for you.
0: Absolutely not. And by the time like 1957, 58 rolls around, Williams, like you said, he was still knocking out stiffs left um, here and there. That's why he was staying so active. But his talent level was raising at that point, too. If you look at his record, for instance, he fought, um, he went to England and fought Dick Richardson, who wasn't a guy that was at the very top level, but was a respected contender around that point. And um, Williams won by disqualification. And an interesting point to show you kind of the weird temperament Williams had outside of the ring um. In an article that Carlos Acevedo wrote, he mentioned that Williams was scheduled for a rematch with Richardson, and then um, voices in his head told him not to go through with it, so he pulled out the last minute.
1: Yeah, he's kind of a strange cat. Very sure. strange. Cat.
0: There was a lot of there was a lot of like you know for all the headlines he was making in the ring, there was a lot of outside the ring headlines he was making too, just for odd things, very odd things, you know, like that. When you have like you know spirits in your head telling you that you shouldn't go through with a fight. Chances are you're not going to make it to the very top of your profession, but I mean, neither here nor there. Yeah. Like another thing in that same article, there's mention that Williams at one time attacked his wife with a meat cleaver over some kind of dispute that they had, which is pretty graphic and scary and all kinds of different things. So that's wild shit. But what makes this even more insane is that one day Williams was out doing road work and decided to go for a detour on road work to the police station. And the reason why he decided to run to the police station is because he decided to go pick up the meat cleaver. And guess what? They gave it to him.
1: But... <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know? when you got shit to butcher, you got shit to butcher. I don't know. I mean, i like...
0: thinking, I don't know. Maybe they're making pork chops that night or some shit. I have no idea. But like, it's interesting that he goes there. And I can. I would love to picture that scene of him walking into the police station, just very looking, very imposing. And saying, hey, you guys got my meat cleaver. Can I get it back? And some poor dude behind the desk is doing some paperwork who doesn't want any trouble is like, yeah, yeah, here, here, take it.
1: <laughs> get out of here, dude. Just get the fuck out of here.
0: But um, anyways, like you said, by the late 50s, he's developed a, he's one of those guys that's – he's a definite top contender. Um, he's kind of in the same pack of the, other, of the other contenders that they can't really climb above each other because – you know, they just know they're not going to get a shot in general, so they're kind of forced to fight each other at this point. Not unsimilar to the black contenders that Jack Johnson basically shunned when he was champion. And so they were forced to, like, Sam Wainford and Joe Jeanette and um Sam McVeigh and such, you know? So, kind of the same thing. And so Williams, at this point, was forced to go at the gauntlet against the most avoided and scariest of the contenders at that point, Sonny Liston. And, um, yeah, they ended up fighting twice. Williams. To his credit, I mean, they were fierce fights. They didn't last very long, but they were fierce nonetheless. And Williams um, gave a good account of himself in both of them. He just got splattered in both of them as well.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and it was the wrong time, wrong fighter. You know, I mean...
0: Yeah, and, and Williams' style was not made to do damage to a guy like Whist- Liston no. who was, like, a wall, you know?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, Cleveland Williams was, was a free swinger, a guy who... Um, you know, he there's video of him. You look at his style, and he was uh, mostly a wide swinger, somebody who, who had really good power but was wide open, whereas Sonny Liston was just a heavy-handed dude and had a lot more orthodox technique and was a little bit more up the middle, you know, than Cleveland Williams, and on top of that was just hard as fuck and not easy to to stop not easy to knock out not easy to hurt and it was the bad bad style bad time wrong fighter um you know and so and and you could even see that in a number of his fights after the Sonny Liston fight the stretch that after or after sorry the the Sonny Liston rematch that stretch after that is actually probably his best stretch as a fighter, where he does you know some of his best work coming back from that. But then you know it's unfortunate that he kind of ran into trouble when he did because you know you look he has a win over Alex Mitov, who by then already had a bunch of losses. But Alex Mitov was a really good amateur standout from Argentina, who uh, then went on to I think he fought early on he fought Muhammad Ali. He wound up training Oscar Bonavena later, like years and years later. Uh, and he was on the boxing scene for a long time. But he was, you know, a, a competent heavyweight contender for a number of years. Winds up uh, stopping Ernie Terrell, you know, a, a pretty good version of Ernie Terrell. He draws with Eddie Machen, you know, Billy Daniels, when Billy Daniels still only had one loss. So, I mean, like, you know, it was actually a really good run overall for <laughs> Cleveland Williams. There's
0: one fight I want to actually mention during that run that we should bring up just because it's so fucking wild. And I wish that there'd be footage of it, but there's not. And you're not yeah, – you might know what I'm talking about. It's against a guy by the name of Young Jack Johnson. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> young Jack Johnson back then – Um, I can't remember what his real name was. I'd have to – I don't feel like clicking on it. But um, he was – uh, he, I he wasn't a top contender. I'm not even sure if you would even consider him a contender back then. But, I mean, he had some. He had a win over Zora Foley. He had a win over some other guys. But he was just known as, you know, there's always just like one general asshole of the division that you just know if you fight him, there's just going to be trouble in general because he's just going to be surly and do something illegal to you and piss you off and just in general, right? You know what I mean? It's just not fun. I mean, there's gonna and there's always going to be controversy. There's always going to be some kind of stupid thing that's going to happen that's going to make you look bad that was fighting a guy like young jack johnson and so right away if you go if you look at this fight um where was it williams outboxed the most of the way and then johnson refused uh and stopped over to williams and hit him and hit him in the corner at the start of each round that's what that's what johnson was doing at the start of each round he would walk over to Williams' corner and start hitting them before the bell even started. They exchanged four punches before the bell sounded to open up the ninth round. The only knockdown came in the fifth when Williams caught Johnson with a booming right hand, followed by a left hook to send the former California champion down for an eight count. The end came when Williams threw a long left hook and moved in with a right to knock Johnson into the ropes. But after the bout had ended, Johnson walked across the ring and tagged Williams with a left hook. <laughs> Cornerman had to step in when Johnson tried to attack Williams with a chair in the dressing room after the bout so
1: yeah you know. it was so it was basically every single fight was Bo Tillery
0: yeah 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 if he fought a guy like Jack Johnson absolutely he was just and he had a crazy and sad ending himself because I think he got into it with his step somewhat he had an altercation I believe it was with his stepdaughter and he ended up getting stabbed to death over it and died very young so you know
1: possibly a, a story for another podcast
0: absolutely absolutely you know it's a very we've done guys we've done stories on lesser names than his so
1: yeah Yeah, it's it's, I mean it's overall that little stretch from you know uh that second loss to Sonny Liston he only has one loss and it's a split decision to Ernie Terrell and then so what's that
0: not a bad loss at all no
1: it's not even it's not a bad loss whatsoever and overall you know he's gone through a pretty decent chunk of the heavyweight division in the rankings Mm -hmm. except for in 1964 he has he has a little bit of a a little bit of trouble just a little bit
0: you know something
1: and it wasn't inside the ring you know but but, fuck, fucked up yeah yeah Uh, yes yeah so as and i mean it's it's I don't know what to say because it's like you're kind of like – I'm not trying to go on a rant here. But when it comes to a lot of these reports, and I've had to say this on our true crime shows more than once, you have to remember something. When you're going off of like criminal reports and news reports and stuff like that, often this shit's coming straight from the police. And so – You have to take with a grain of salt. Like, do you believe when the police are reporting on some shit that happened to a policeman? <laughs> you know, I mean, is it, we've already we've already established many times now that it might not be reliable. Nonetheless, in, all, in in a lot of these cases, that's all we have. That's all we can go off of. Like if, for instance, this case, because Cleveland Williams disputed what the official account was for a lot of this for for many years. Later on, he seemed to kind of go along with it. But he just it almost sounded like he just didn't really want to fight about it. But in any case, according to Cleveland Williams, he got pulled over outside of Houston uh, in nineteen in November of nineteen sixty four. Or right? Did I get that correct? I think so. Yeah. No, sorry, November of nineteen sixty four. He gets pulled pulled over outside of Houston, and supposedly he was speeding. And this kind of matches with a a bunch of what has been said about him later on. He apparently crashed a whole bunch of cars and was known for, you know, going, going fast. So it kind of matches. But in any case, he was pulled over for speeding and he was taken into custody. He was arrested. Why would speeding be an arrestable offense? Who the fuck knows? Probably because he's a black dude in Texas. Um. So basically he gets arrested. And according to Cleveland Williams, the highway, the Texas highway patrolman started to take him toward a town that was like known for not being friendly to black people or that where I guess he would be treated more harshly by the law or whatever. I, I, I don't know, but that was Cleveland Williams account. And the highway patrolman said that that was not true, that he was just trying to take him to go book him or whatever. And so Cleveland Williams tried to run from the car. The highway patrolman grabbed him. Uh, there was some sort of scuffle. Who knows about all of the details except for it ended with Cleveland Williams getting shot by 357 through his hip. And where the bullet like lodged in his hip and shattered his hip bone he wound up going into like several surgeries dying on the table losing a kidney uh going through extensive rehab um the highway patrolman had this massive gash like on his cheek and said that he got punched uh in the the scuffle and cleveland williams said i don't remember punching him i don't remember fighting him i just remember getting shot but basically you know like I said, who knows all of the details, but long story short, he got into some sort of altercation and wound up very badly fucked up. Um,
0: oh, it's, that was a giant slug that went through his body, and by all accounts, every doctor that, you know, all the doctors that operated him all said the same thing, which was, if it wasn't for his body and how he was built, he would have died, because no one else, like, if we got shot by that, we, we would have been killed. Like, that thing... Or through his entire system you know like a lot of his insides intestines had to be a lot of his intestines had to be removed um i think a bowel thing messed up his kidney like you said got <laughs> destroyed lodged in all like it destroyed a lot of part of his body and he lost massive amounts of weight his whole frame his you know his beautiful figure that he had um was withered into nothing and by the time he was finally released from, uh, from the hospital, he was a, just a shell of himself, an absolute shell. He had nothing for himself. And so, yeah, for a while, it looked kind of hopeless for him because what ended up happening was after he did that, the first thing he did was just go back into the streets. Because, you know, what else was he have going for himself? You know what I mean? He didn't know anything. You know what I mean? So that was just easy for him. Plus, he's depressed. He thinks his career is over at one point. He's one of the top heavyweights in the world you know a commanding figure and you know probably in line for a big fight the next thing you know he's fighting for his life he miraculously somehow pulls through with it but now he's just looking at his career possibly more likely being over or whatever but um he was rescued i believe it was a hugh Benbow who rescued him
1: it was actually the other guy Lou suzy no 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 so um so Lou Viscuzzi had sold his contract, sold Cleveland Williams contract to Hugh Benbow, who had also, who was in a partnership with um, a millionaire named Bud Adams. Okay. And so Bud, Al- Bud Adams was like, you know, a, he was some magnet who was, you know, independently wealthy or whatever. And he had, obviously taken some sort of investment interest in Cleveland Williams' career, but also it sounded like he had some sort of soft spot for him and also kind of like, you know, uh, went above and beyond to take care of him. And it was supposedly Cleveland Williams was in a kind of um, like charity hospital or something like that. And they moved him, Bud Adams, Uh, helped pay to move him to a specialty hospital. And that's where he wound up being taken care of by a doctor who just so happened to be a friend of his Cleveland Williams, a dude that he knew where from, I have no idea, but that was the doctor who had said, you know, if if Cleveland Williams weren't in such great shape and all this type of stuff, um, I have no, he said something about his abdominal wall being three times as thick. I don't even know if that's possible, but the, the point is that like, I do believe like the shape that he was in. Yeah. There's no question that the, because he was in such good shape, that's a primary factor in the fact that he fucking was able to get through uh, an injury that would have killed a whole lot of other people. But it was, it was this also involvement that wind up that wound up uh, this Hugh Benbow guy. The guy was basically just a Texas con artist who was taking advantage and had kind of slithered his way into a partnership with the other guy who was the actual rich fucking guy. This dude was like a cattle rancher slash like laboring, you know, guy. I don't even know what the fuck else he was. He, oh, <laughs> Hugh Benbow was getting sued by Shell and another oil company for stealing oil maps yeah so the dude was just a con man but in any case this association bud adams and hugh benbow who had bought cleveland williams contract that wound up being uh fortuitous and also kind of biting cleveland williams in the ass because mm-hmm. cleveland williams came back from this injury and despite the fact that you know given the all the circumstances and everything and how it was reported you would probably think that he would not be very well liked or see people would be like, Oh, he's a villain. But he apparently was, you know, cheered and shit when he came back and was making public appearances after he recovered. So he had kind of worked his way back to getting a shot at Muhammad Ali. And that's where this kind of that association association comes, unfortunately full circle.
0: Yeah. Yeah um yeah Williams ends up he gets rescued from the streets he builds back his body somehow into some you know close enough to a resemblance of what he once was I mean clearly he's going to be a shell of his former self he's never going to be the fighter he once was and like I said at the beginning of this that being said had he fought Ali at his very best he probably might have lasted a couple of more rounds but the result would have been the same he still would have got splattered but that being said, it was, you know, credit to him that I was able to come back that much and, you know, to build himself up to fight uh, Ali. And it was a massacre. It absolutely was. Ali splattered him, just knocked him around. First round, um, Ali beat the shit out of him badly. Just came out and Williams is trying, Ali, moving, moving. But once Ali started rolling, Williams couldn't block a punch. You can just see he's bewildered by the speed of what he's experienced because he's never seen anything like this. Gets dropped hard. And if it wasn't for the bell saving him, he would have been knocked out in the first round. 'Cause at the very end of it, Ali hits him with a beautiful combination. Bah, 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 bah. But that's when you see Williams splayed out like that. <laughs> you know. <laughs> his poor cornerman just grab him and just drag him to the corner while he's like half unconscious right there. And they should have, like, if that happened today, it would have been right then and there It would have been over. But um he he goes a couple of more rounds before the mass scores finally stop. But um still that's not the end of his career. You know, and he still fights high profile guys. Um he ends up fighting another knockout artist who was on during that time was knocking the hell out of everybody left and right. Mac Foster, who in turn knocked him out twice, um, fought Jack O'Halloran. and in a fight you sent me recently, Pat, uh, late very late in his career in 1971, he fights George uh, George Chivallo, which was on the um, uh, I forgot what the, what the undercard of that was, but um, fights Chevallo and um, that was a hell of a fucking banger.
1: I I know dude every so often I mean we're just kind of sick is what it is so Mm -hmm. like let don't get me wrong here it's not about like oh I've seen so much it's like I'm I'm fucking sick and I've seen so much okay but like every so often there'll be some fight from yeah from 50 years ago or whatever that I just haven't seen and I'm like oh shit this is a motherfucking banger and that was one of them totally
0: and for Williams by 1971
1: who was beyond washed? I mean,
0: this is a guy who came yeah, back from-
1: seven years after he yes. was already, like, you know, according to people, you know, trash by, you know, taken out by Muhammad Ali. This is seven years after that.
0: And not only that, his career started around 1950, 1949. All right. Even though you're knocking out a bunch of steps left and right, you're still fighting all the way back then. Like, this is a long career he's had. Yeah. You at this point,
1: I mean? he looks like your uncle at a fucking family reunion far yeah. too many beers in like that's just his look
0: he's still in shape and you still know that he can probably kick a lot of ass right just, oh, like
1: just... th- that uncle will still fuck you up i'm just yeah. saying he looks like
0: you know that, yeah anybody that's young and scrapping is probably going to take unc out <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah no well, i mean in in the fact that he was still even getting a win over terry daniels dude in 1972 <laughs> roberto davila i mean these are like I, they're not like great fighters or anything but they're their names
0: it is yeah i mean terry daniels poor guy he probably shouldn't have been in boxing i think he was a college graduate and um you know made it to made it enough that he was able to fight joe frazier the day before the super bowl and get creamed really badly but um his career took a massive, massive nosedive after that, and I think that contributed to his uh, later issues in life. But um,
1: yeah. yeah. You know, it's it's crazy too because the the Ali fight had its own, uh, you know, brief saga or whatever. Uh, because Cleveland Williams wound up only making about seven grand from the That's Ali right. fight.
0: Yeah. He, got, he got jacked really badly from that. Jacked had really me in that.
1: Well, and I mean, it's kind of like. I it, you feel shitty, dude, because you could kind of see both sides of it. According to Bud Adams, the millionaire guy, he had basically said, You know, I'm charging Cleveland Williams for the medical bills because I got stuck with medical bills and a whole bunch of other shit. Uh, because according to him, he had paid him like an allowance and bought him cars that he had wrecked. And all sorts of other shit. So he's basically like, dude, you owe me like 30 grand. And then also because he had gotten the big payday from the Ali fight, uh, you know, a chunk of that got taken for taxes. And then he basically also got bilked by the fucking uh, by the other dude, Hugh Benbow. And then on top of that, after the fight, he also said that that basically Hugh Ben. I mean, Sorry, Uh, some of it kind of goes a little before the fight because the story's funny, and it's exactly how you might think it would be. The Sports Illustrated issue immediately before the Ali fight, they're like, Hugh Benbow, you know, he's this guy with a great idea. He's a businessman. He's a go-getter. He's a fucking this. He's a that. And they're like describing what they're describing what his business or whatever is down in Texas. And they're saying that on his ranch, what he plans to have is this heavyweight factory where he's putting out fucking ads in the ring and he's saying, heavyweights, hey, come live on my ranch, work my ranch. You can get paid to work my ranch and also you can spar each other and train with each other and we'll fucking turn this into a jamboree of fucking heavyweights. And but then like you're you're thinking about it and you're like, wait, what? They're they're saying that they're going to be putting together TV cabinets and also, bro, this sounds like a fucking sweatshop. <laughs> like, what the fuck? But they're one, making guy it, did take the, one guy did take the bait, though. Well, and and they're making it sound great. And then this the issue of Sports Illustrated immediately after the fight, they're like, this guy's a crook. We knew it the whole time. He's trying to screw over Cleveland Williams and Cleveland Williams is like, yeah, you know, I was basically living in a tent on this guy's property and fucking like working as a fucking field hand for something like 40 cents a day or some shit like that. And I was like, you know, living in a tent and having to just eat some fucking gruel. And basically, you know, it's
0: just living with Dave Ziglowitz because then that's what I was going to say. Then Ziglowitz was the one that that uh, that answered the ad in the ring. So according
1: to Cleveland Williams, there were several fighters who answered the ads. But that none of them wound up staying because they were all just like, What the fuck is this? But that it was apparently not that far from where Cleveland Williams was actually from, like where his house was. And so he was kind of just like, Okay, and went along with it. And so <laughs> I don't mean to like laugh at him or like laugh at the fact that somebody's getting taken advantage of. I'm mostly laughing at the fact that it was like he you was know, praised beforehand, shitting on him afterward. But the bottom line is that he did he did wind up getting screwed. Um, you know, especially when he added all all up later. He made a lot of these people fucking a lot of money, dude. He wound up with pretty much nothing.
0: Yeah, and it's sad too, man, because after his career ended, he he struggled a lot in life. Like he had he held jobs and he did what he always knew how to do. Like there were a couple of articles about him and um in the early eighty and the early eighties ring magazines. Um documenting you know catching up with them and the thing about the Lord's interesting about those articles not just about Cleveland Williams but in particular is that a lot of those articles back then they would profile guys like Cleveland Williams um plus Billy Fox um the old 1920s middleweight champion John Wilson is another one I remember they would profile a lot of these guys um George Sugar uh George Costner George Sugar Costner was another one but they would have these you know catch up with them interview them talking with it you know yada 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 and a lot of these guys would disappear off the face of the earth after this you wouldn't really know what the hell happened to them. um for instance the most glaring one probably would be billy fox you can't i mean i'm assuming he's been dead for years because he'd be over 100 now but like you couldn't find anything on him after that after that interview in the ring from like 1980 1981 he just completely just dropped off
1: um there have been so many fighters where I've looked up where like, I'm like, what happened to that? And I just, there's oh, nothing,
0: yeah. nothing, completely nothing. So, but Cleveland Williams was another one. I mean, he didn't drop off the face of the earth. People always, you know, he'd surface here and there and whatever, but like, you didn't hear anything about him for a number of years, you know, he just he was just living. Don't know if he was living well or whatever, but he was just out there until finally um, when I was young, still relatively young. That's the last time I heard about was when he ended up in the, um, that he passed away, I think it was in the late nineties. And I think that was an unfortunate one too. He got like hit by a car, something happened like that, something sketchy, but he, um, you know, kind of died on unfortunate circumstances.
1: Yeah, man. I mean, especially given uh, how long he fought. Yeah. Yeah.
0: He had a long, tough life. That was just a guy that was going to have a long life and considering how he grew up and everything like that. Um, you just kind of knew this, the cards were going to be stacked against him and him reaching the heights that he – don't know if he was going ever going to reach them, but, like, the heights that he hoped to reach, it just wasn't going to happen. And that being said, we covered his career. Had he fought Patterson, how do you think that would have turned out? Prime Cleveland Williams, we're talking early, mid-50s, you know, before
1: yeah. the <clears> – <throat> like if he would have fought if he would have fought uh if Floyd Patterson would have fought Cleveland Williams instead of Archie Moore for instance like for the title like just you know around yeah. that time man i don't know cuz i mean uh, floyd's defense was not great and <laughs> and on top of that he seemed to be really vulnerable uh he he kind of just would he wasn't even like bobbing and weaving and dipping like with a purpose. A lot of the time he was just not even looking. He was like, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. doing just that shit. And, yeah. and that's, that's just death against a, like a wide swinging puncher. You know what I mean? Like that's just asking for it. But I mean, I'd probably go with Floyd just cause he was the better fighter, but at yeah. the same time that, that could have been bad. <laughs> that could have been bad for him.
0: It could have been. I mean, it's, it would have been a really fun fight and Patterson definitely would have had to come off the deck probably more than once before he had to finish him. And <laughs> yeah. I don't think the fight would have lasted more than five rounds either way, because the, the, both of them were just, you know, free swinging maniacs. But um it would've been fun while it lasted. But I kind of agree with that. I think Patterson ended up would have beaten him. But, you know, we had custom model there to make sure that would never, ever, ever happen. So pretty
1: much. <laughs> Yeah, and who's, a, in your estimation, another kind of lost 50s heavyweight or maybe somebody I mean, that Cuss tough, really didn't want him fighting?
0: If you want to, you know, talk about something like that, you have to bring up um, Eddie Machen. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, for sure. You know, Eddie Machen's one of those guys who, especially when you look through, like, the rankings and how long he was in the rankings and stuff like that, it's kind of just like, what, where, what, how? where, what? where did he go he all
0: a contender you know a guy that was undefeated for a number of years and it, it was like he was kind of under the radar because like a dude like him machen was just very um he wasn't exciting that's the best way to put it he just was not a very exciting fighter whatsoever you know what i mean he kind of lulled you to sleep but i mean he was very confident like he was a excellent boxer and good moves and if He had good power too, all right. He could surprise you, but he just wasn't a guy that he always kind of stood just neutral and like in that type of gear. If you forced him to fight, he could fight. And if he felt in the mood for whatever reason that he was like inclined to pounce on you, he could be really impressive because he did, you know, have a killer instinct when he wanted to. But for the most part, he was just a really, really solid, foundationally well boxer that was just, you know, always on the cusp of um really breaking through and making it to the very top but something was always holding him back. You know what I mean? First off, being a part of that era certainly wasn't going to help because he was one of the top guys of that era that he knew he was going to be a painter that asked to fight him. And, you know, Customado saw the writing on the wall fighting him too, that that just wouldn't be an easy fight for him. And knowing that, knowing that, um, knowing who Machin was aligned with, even though it wasn't might have been not that um, mob-tied, D'Amato was going to put him in that group regardless and he also I think you know <laughs> tried to you saying oh he has a boring style who's going to want to watch that type of thing so
1: yeah he was there's actually um, on his Wikipedia entry or whatever on box rec there's a couple of chunks from the ring that are pretty good that are, you know, pretty good summations or whatever, summaries of Eddie Machen and his career and his start in boxing. Like he was similar to um, Ken Norton. He was like an athletic kid who had, you know, gone through several sports and was really talented, but then um, boxing had run in his family. And so he had gotten into boxing and became a pretty good amateur and just kind of stuck it out and, you know, became, pro and turn pro but like yeah like like you had said a lot of a lot of what we're talking about today a lot about what we're talking about with uh, a lot of these eras of fighters is just timing you know the timing for when they come along or get going or who they get hooked up with or managed by promoted by etc i mean not promoted by as much during this time but in any case yeah um you know we, we talked earlier about the fact that this is kind of like a in the the post Marciano era mm-hmm. and that a lot of the U S public is still looking for a replacement or a dominant heavyweight or something like that. And on top of that, they're generally not going to be looking for somebody who's a stylist or somebody who's a boxer puncher, somebody who's an efficient fighter, you know, they want excitement. And, yeah. and I guess, you know, on, on some level Floyd Patterson did offer that, you know, he, he punched wide, you know, he had good punching power and, uh, could knock most fighters out but he would also get knocked down fairly frequently which was exciting and like you said eddie machin was he was just not really that kind of fighter
0: he wasn't but i mean at, at the same time he was just a really really good fighter just a solid individual man and he was matched well up early on it wasn't a guy like cleveland williams who went on like i said went on the cracker barrel circuit and just knocked a bunch of steps around left and right you know machin his first his first year as a pro, yes, he he just, you know, fought a few guys here and there. But, like, by the time in late 1955, and this is still his first year, he's fighting guys like Howard King, who was a competent pro, and, you know, been around the block for a while, and he dominated him. By 1956, he's fighting Julio Medeiros and Nino Valdez. Julio Medeiros is known for knocking the hell out of um, Roland Lestarza. That was featured on the 30-grade one-punch knockout video. And um, he also had a controversial knockout over all-time great late heavyweight, um, Harold Johnson. Where I think Johnson claimed he was um, poisoned by a bad orange or some shit before the fight. But regardless, Julio Maderas knocked him out. And he didn't have a great record, but that was a good win on his record. That was a good win by him. And then he also beat Nino Valdez, another fighter who was heavily avoided during that era. And that was the first time he fought Valdez. So these are tough tough either gatekeeper French contenders or top contenders he's already going in the ring with at an advanced age early on now you know like he had a good amateur career but like he's being like moved pretty rapidly so you move on he's fighting julio medeiros again now he's fighting guys like johnny Summerlin and former light heavyweight champion joey maxim and maxim by 1957 is on the back end of his career and he's more so of an opponent than he is like a a guy that's going to be a top contender but yeah. Especially,
1: like, I mean, it's, and I'm sorry to inter- interrupt, but especially at the time and given the size, because he's not a heavyweight, and he's not yeah. a big puncher at light heavyweight either.
0: But, you know, being light heavyweight champion brought no money back then, unless he was going to fight somebody like Sugar Ray Robinson, so most light heavyweight champions always wanted to jump in and try to you know, tiptoe their way to fight heavyweights, and some really get their asses kicked because of it. Um, Gus Lesnovich, when he tried to challenge Ezra Charles, and Hosts of others before him, and then as Maxson tried to do the same thing as Charles beat his ass a few times. Um, <laughs> and Um The only one he had success with was Floyd Patterson, who was more of a late heavyweight than even Maxson was, I would suppose. Yep.
1: So,
0: um, but still, these are all big wins that he, these are all like really good wins that he has, you know what I mean? He beats Bob Baker, and he goes on and on. And like, he's not dominating these guys and knocking them out, but he's beating them, you know, pretty comprehensively. So by 1957, as he's being proven now as one of the as one of the top contenders for Patterson, he fights um, a Patterson holdover, Tommy Hurricane Jackson, and Tommy Hurricane Jackson is another wild personality from the era, just a complete eccentric, um, a fun fighter, you know, with a complete uh, with a windmill style who didn't know how to block a punch if his life depended on it. But
1: yeah, is a perfect nickname for him.
0: Oh yeah, completely. Yeah, just. And he was nuts too, man. Like he had the he has the craziest excuse for why he didn't like blocking punches. The man actually said, "I like to get hit. It makes me feel good and strong." <laughs> you know. And if you watch his two fights with Floyd Patterson, he must have been absolutely feeling euphoric because Patterson was hitting him like a fucking heavy bag. You know what I mean? Just boom, boom, boom with the hooks and uppercuts and hooks and right hands, boom, 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 or just like you couldn't miss him. You know, Jackson, whatever. And by the time Eddie Machen fought him in 1957, Jackson was, you know, cooked. So he gets beaten, battered. And that's the one of the few times Machen really um, shows himself to be like, you know, I'll talk about the killer instinct of him. All that being said, now uh, we're moving into early 1958. He's going to be matched up with Zora Foley, another super top contender. This is on television. These are the two top guys, besides Sonny Liston, obviously, um, excuse me, who. But should You know, whoever wins this fight will be the consensus number one to challenge Patterson, at least in the eyes of the public and the press and everybody else like that. Then this is a big, you know, this is just a big event. Like, if this fight was happening today, this would definitely, I don't know if it would headline a pay-per-view, but knowing today's market, it might. There'd be a chance they'd try to find a way to finagle on some bullshit, you know
1: I I can pretty much guarantee it'd be a pay-per-view
0: you think so yeah probably right as opposed <laughs> to just being like a a showtime main event
1: yeah it, it would at least be a championship boxing you know then yeah. neither of them's a champion but it would at least be
0: definitely would have been yeah. yeah totally totally and that would have been a big fight but all that being said it's a big event for both of them and they both end up laying a fucking egg in that fight like it was not good <laughs> you know um both guys are tentative counterpunchers to begin with, and it just it just bad mix of styles. They didn't really want to go on each other, and it was
1: yeah. It was I don't not- know what it was about the Cow Palace in Daly City, bro. But for like about like seven, eight years, they were holding events at this joint. All the fucking like Ezra Charles fought a whole bunch of fucking people fought there. I think Joe, I think Joe Lewis fought there at one point. I don't know what the fuck was going on with the Cow Palace, dude, but motherfuckers were going there all the time during the 50s and shit. But, yeah, it was it was not good. It was not a good look for either Zora Foley or Eddie Machen in that fight.
0: And it wasn't. That was the biggest platform that they could have been on at that point, besides fighting for the title, where they could prove themselves that. And had one of them, like, really, you know, brought their A game and dominated the other, which could have been totally possible because... It, you know, it, it was there for the taking, but for both of them just kind of going through the motions and not wanting to take a chance, the public was not clamoring for either one to fight Patterson after that, even though they were deserved for it. You know, because who would want to see that? Like, really? Yeah. You know, and you can have a guy like Rademacher come in, or you know, a schlep like Tom McNeely, who's going to be guaranteed to run in there and try to knock Patterson's head off. So, like, midfield. Exactly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> not good fighters whatsoever
0: not good fighters whatsoever, but you know, they're not going to, you know, they're not going to hold back and they'll try their hardest (laughs) and
1: they'll
0: get knocked silly for it. And that's what Custom Auto wanted.
1: Yeah, that's true. No, that's true. And he did have a couple, you know, and Patterson did have a couple of those kind of like Tommy Jackson firefights that like, they weren't like good fighters, but they were at least they were entertaining. They were, I guess, what the, you know, what the public wanted overall. But, yeah, uh, otherwise, there were these – I mean, especially Eddie Machen's probably the best example of, like, cleaning out the division for Floyd Patterson. Yes. <laughs> you know, like
0: – Yeah, he, man, and he fought them all. And he so, did all the hard work for him. He really did, man. He fought a gauntlet of guys at that point. It's a very – whether the records are top-notch or not, and a lot of people go on box BoxRec and be like, well, this one just had the record and this one – like, yeah. Bob Baker had a record of 47 and 10 at that point. All right? Who cares about the 10 losses? He fought a who's who of contenders and former champions. Like, these Excuse were good me. fighters that he was being matched with young. Like, this was, like, within his first 20, 30 Get somebody
1: that you never hear about, you know? Because if you said oh, Bob Baker, oh. people would go, Bob who? You know? But, like, no, literally-
0: Yeah, Totally.
1: But in the in the wake of one of the issues of The Ring after Marciano retired, in the wake of Marciano like retiring and they're trying to figure out who's going to take over, you know, there's like one of the issues has like a maybe it's maybe like six or seven names across it, and Baker is one of them. You know what I mean? And so, again, now people be like, who? Well, who's that? But like at the time, they were looking and going, like, this is one of the guys who might, you know, be the guy.
0: Totally. And then from there, Unfortunately, because we just said um, Andy Machen is a guy that just kind of has bad luck, like Cleveland Williams, but it's just a different type of bad juju. Um, After laying in that, he Foley. And, you know, basically being blackballed now from getting a title shot at Patterson. Both of them were, for that matter, because they're like, who the fuck wants to see this? He kind of, you know, his next best option, I guess, is to fight an unknown guy and to travel out to Sweden to fight Egnamard Johansson. And um, I'll let you take this one, Pat.
1: <laughs> it's on YouTube. And wow. Yeah. I mean, I shouldn't laugh.
0: I really shouldn't laugh because it's really bad. It's, it's so bad.
1: bad. And it's, and on top of that, it's like one of those, it's like there didn't really seem to be a whole lot of padding on the ring. You know, like they were just like had some boards or some shit. So, I mean, and, you know, Ingemar Johansson, not a super great fighter in terms of accomplishments. And I mean, like, you know, a pretty good fighter in terms of the eye test or whatever is, you know, when you watch him, he basically had a punch or two and was a good puncher, but also was kind of belonged. He belonged in that like Floyd Patterson category where like, you know, he'd be a cruiserweight easily. You know, he he was not really a big heavyweight whatsoever. So, um, you know, but I mean, first round, Eddie Machen, it was like he never really had a chance. I don't know if he had, like, jet lag. I don't know what happened to the guy. I have absolutely no idea. All I know was that Johansson caught him, heard him. Eddie, and it's, it's kind of almost similar to, uh, what was it, BoJack, Ike, Ike Williams, where he gets, like, caught in the, you know, caught against the ropes and the ref's just, like, standing there. You know, it's like, what? Go ahead. Tee off. Do whatever you want to do. And Eddie Machen's just sitting there, just bam, ba bam, ba-bam, bam. bam. And of course, now, you know, whatever, um, let me think, maybe five years later at Madison Square Garden is, uh, you know, Benny Pretz dying in a very similar fashion against Emile Griffith. So, I mean, perhaps a couple years later, people would have been like, oh, my God. But even so, you could see, like, fucking his corner, Eddie Machen's corner is, like, almost trying to rush into the ring, like, okay, ref, stop. Please stop. And and basically, Eddie Machen takes just an absolute ruthless beating, falls to the canvas. The ref's sitting there counting him out as his corners, trying to revive him and going, like, please go away. Leave us alone. And the ref's just sitting there counting. It's awful, dude. It's terrible. It's truly terrible.
0: so, so bad, bro. Like, you know, let me try to bring it up in this book right here. Like... It was just one of those things that when Machen, when he got hit, all right, like, he walks in, and Johansson hits him with his right hand. I mean, it's a monster punch, and like you said, Johansson was very limited in what he did, and believe even when he, when he ended up fighting for the, he was in the Olympics, wasn't he, Johansson?
1: I think so, yeah.
0: And he got, like, disqualified for like, being skittish and just kind of, like, non-fighting, whatever it was, so, like, he... He came in, like, when you when you see a guy like that and, you know, and you're going back to, like, the late 50s, how much footage can you really see on a dude to know what you're getting in there with and know true. what's happening? You know what I mean? So, like, Machen probably thought this would have been a cakewalk, but, like, the first knockdown he gets hit with, he's already gone. Like, he's unconscious. The fact that he somehow scrambled to his feet is incredible in itself. It's almost, it's Larry Holmes, like, when Larry Holmes got hit with Ernie Shavers. But unlike that time, when Holmes still somehow kind of sort of had his wits about him, um, Machen totally did not. Like, he was gone. He was just a zombie who stood up, glassy-eyed, staring ahead, and he had no idea what the fuck just happened to him. And nobody on the planet would have ever, with worth a conscience, would have ever allowed that to continue. But the referee in Sweden, will, you know, probably had a shim Sham commission back then and clearly didn't give a damn, let that go on. And so first thing that happens, Johansson goes over there, boom boom, hits him with another two piece or whatever it was. And Machin now is like unconscious, but now like unconscious, like he's like badly damaged, where you should probably take him out on a stretcher and get him to a hospital for observation immediately. And instead, Machin's cornermen are in the ring feverishly working on him. And in the most surreal thing you will ever see, while they're working on him, Pat, and yeah, you've seen this, but like while they're working on him, fucking the referee is still counting. Like how is the referee still counting? Like there's a fight going yeah. on when the corner is in there. I, pulling
1: I out probably the in my oh. head added way more punches than there actually was, but it's like it's almost like watching it in slow motion. You're <laughs> just like, what? How? It, you know? It, it, I, it, it, yeah, it, I don't. It, I've, I. You don't really see too many. You don't see too many knockouts like that for a reason. I mean, thank goodness you shouldn't, because they shouldn't happen that way. But like. You know, especially in like a higher profile fight or, you know, yeah, it was a, it was bad, dude.
0: It was really bad. And that kind of just, you know, ruined his chances of really getting a chance at Patterson, which wasn't going to happen at that time anyways, because Customato was doing everything in his power to make sure that Machen wasn't going to get a chance at him. And so being a part of that era and being, even though he was one of the top guys of it, that just... Solidified that you know that wasn't going to happen. So for whatever reason, Johansson, which you would think in D'Amato's eyes would somehow make him persona non grata as well for demolishing the number one contender, he ends up like you said earlier getting the shot at Patterson, knocking him out, and then dragging on that long trilogy. It was a fun trilogy, absolutely fun, but also very long and dragged out. And yeah. just yeah. Johansson, once he Patterson, he took forever and made the you know it was just bad. Yeah.
1: Yeah, kind of needless. And then it just tied up the rest of the division. And and again, dude, again. So we're talking about 58, 59, 60. And here we are. Uh, Eddie Machen comes back from he, I mean, even coming back at all, period. That's something to behold. But he comes back six months later and just resumes his career. Doesn't go on like, you know, a fantastic run, but goes on a very good run. He actually uh, fought. A lot out of the pacific north northwest and there's a guy who he defeated in one round who doesn't get talked about a whole lot but was another contender right around this time that was talked about very highly pat mcmurtry yes Uh,
0: that's a good one and
1: he fought out of tacoma but fought out of you know just out of the river over here in Portland a whole bunch of times and was uh, considered a pretty big attraction in Portland when he fought here. And in any case, Pat McMurtry got demolished by Eddie Machen Eddie Machen didn't really demolish anybody, but that set him up for Zora Foley. And, you know, I mean, Zora Foley dude, making the comeback, the guy's just all over the place too. And that's also just to show that uh, that Eddie Machen Zora Foley all these guys are fighting each other. Floyd's not fucking fighting them, bro. They're all just fighting each other. You know, uh, he he drops a decision to Zora Foley. At least Zora Foley gets a you know uh, a solid win this time. But he comes back, defeats Alex Mithef, and then winds up getting matched with Eddie. Or I'm sorry, with um with Sunny Liston. And I remember this is one of the fights that they had been showing on ESPN Classic for fucking ever and like, it should because that fight sucks yeah i don't know why i don't get it i never understood I remember it. It too. yeah it was I like never that, understood it, was, it. it was like
0: a, there was a rotation of like five fights that they put on all the time and that was one and of
1: that them. was one of them and i never understood it i was just like okay great we we get to that see was him a, in action and but. That
0: was the thing, like unfortunately that was a dreadful performance by Machin. he didn't fight he wouldn't fight he was on his bicycle. Liston just stalked him for 12 rounds and just kind of jabbed him, whatever. Yeah, he went the distance, which is a moral victory, but if... You kind of have to compare it with, like... I mean, this is a deep cut here, but when Lonnie Smith fought Julio Cesar Chavez in the early 90s. You know what I mean? And, like, if you remember that fight, Smith talked a lot of shit before the fight. Not saying Machen was running his mouth before Liston, I don't think anyone was that stupid. But, um... Smith was saying he was going to do X, Y, and Z, blah, blah, blah. Immediately got on his bicycle. Chavez just stalked him and beat him up for twelve rounds. But Smith didn't do a damn thing. And yeah, it's the same thing. Like you don't fight is going to make for a dreadful fight because the other guy is going to be forced to check uh, to, to chase you, and he might not be the most fleet of foot himself. So it's just going to make for you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, it made for it was not a very engaging fight, but uh, it also it it really helped propel Sonny Liston toward, you know, a point where it was like Floyd Patterson could no longer ignore him. He was kind of backed into a corner because he had defeated Eddie Machen and done it fairly easily. But Machen, you know, from that point forward, he, he obviously continued on his career, but you know, it got spotty very quickly after that Uh, as far as his performances, you know, uh, the, uh, probably the best win he has after that is an undefeated Doug Jones, who also was a, not a very big heavyweight whatsoever and could have fallen into that, you know, big light heavyweight or small cruiserweight, uh, category. But, you know, he had a, a handful of engagements after that. Oh no, yeah. I forgot about the Jerry Quarry win. I mean,
0: yeah, absolutely. You know, it was I like, forgot about that, that, actually he, Like Machen for a guy. Because we didn't even mention too that like outside of the ring, he he suffered from a lot of mental health. Like he had a lot of issues going on from, you know, anxiety and I think a, a lot of a lot of different things. That he, and he was he spent a lot of time in the mental institutions for that too because of things he was going on. And also, his, as his wife said, he would struggle because he would feel like the inability to get a big fight trying to maintain you know support his family with the bullshit paydays he was getting back then and yada 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 it was tough it was really really tough and that easily could break the toughest person you know down to, to absolutely nothing so like yeah things would happen to him and um there's a chapter in the book sporting blood as but they mentioned during it i'll, I'll read something right here um <clears throat> on december 12th 1962 This is just like an instance of what was going on with Machen. Machen was discovered sitting in his car on the shoulder of the Cummings Skyway by a police officer. The despondent fighter had a gun and a suicide note in the vehicle with him. Presumably, he intended to put both to use. Machen was arrested and taken to a psychiatric ward in in Napa State Hospital. His wife told the Associated Press that Machen had been disturbed over money matters and failure to get a fight. He was trying very hard to get a fight with anyone. Fighting was his profession. And he wanted to work at it. He was worried about family finances. Like, damn, you know,
1: you know, and coming along several decades later, yeah, perhaps he would have been taken a lot more seriously. You know,
0: I mean, when dudes like John Weebsby being forced fed down our throats, I'm pretty sure Eddie Machen could have made a nice little living on television.
1: You know? Watch out, so... dude! His former attorney will come after you on Twitter. Oh, yeah,
0: yes, <laughs> <laughs> well. Anyways, to Machin's credit, after that happened, this is and that incident happened in 1962. In the end of 1962, um, he still, you know, had his career going on, like you said, um, to the point where he was evil, evil. He was able to um, finally get a title fight, not the main one that he wanted, but still, um, you know, a title fight nonetheless for the vacant WBA title against Ernie Terrell. So it's like, you know. He still had some big fights in him. Whether they were wins or losses, more so the losses of the big fights, he still, you know, held himself as a contender. <coughs> he lasted a long time.
1: <coughs> he was right in there in that group when they had the, you know, the bogus WBA tournament after uh Muhammad Ali had been stripped and whatnot. Um, so but he was still considered among that group when they were putting that tournament together. So obviously he was still viable as a heavyweight. It was just clear that. You know, especially in hindsight, now we can see that he was—he just never quite got over the hump. And Now we obviously know there were a number of reasons for outside the ring reasons for that too. But yeah, um,
0: it was he, sad, and he ended up fighting Patterson as well.
1: That's true. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, and he had the—he unfortunately caught Patterson when Patterson had gotten rid of Customato and was actually fighting his ass off. And and turning in good performances like kind he of somewhat badass, you know.
0: He had something to prove, exactly.
1: Yeah. He, yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately had to fight Floyd at end. that time.
0: Yeah, Machin at that point, unfortunately, was on the back end and really skittish with his career and had a lot of stuff going on with him. So it didn't end well for him. No, it didn't. And then you know, um, it was it was sad. Like Machin's the end of his career, like he became more of a trail horse opponent. Like he fought Joe Frazier young Joe Frazier, and uh, lasted a number of rounds before he got stopped. And then at the end of his career, he bought another up-and-coming guy um, named Boo Kirkman, who went on to become a fringe contender and is probably best known for uh, being one of the members of the uh, infamous Toronto Five that George Foreman was slapping around immediately after his um, loss to Muhammad Ali.
1: But um, Yeah, Charlie Polite, yeah, a bunch of those foos.
0: And, uh, I mean, look, man, it was such a fiasco, but it's so, like, pro-wrestling, kind of, like, tinged that it's great. Like, you see Foreman beating these can these guys, I don't want to call them cans, but he was beating these guys up, and you just hear Ali ranting. Yeah, Ali's
1: ringside, right? fucking... <laughs> and he's yelling,
0: lay on the ropes!
1: Lay on the ropes! He'll get tired! <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> and just talking shit. In <laughs> you know, Foreman clearly agitated by it, but, like... <laughs> um...
1: We ought to. We're no. That's we're gonna do a show about that.
0: Oh, we have we're, to. We have yeah, to,
1: I didn't even think about you know, that until now. we'll do a show about that.
0: Machin was another one though who uh, had another unfortunate ending, you know. And this one is like kind of well, it's 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 not talked about a lot. Like the one another guy will bring up, I'm sure, in the next instance, like Zora Foley. His death has been discussed a lot over the years. Well, I mean, definitely back in the back in like after it happened up until like the 80s, maybe even the early 90s. It's quieted down a lot over the years. But um a guy like Eddie Machen had one just as kind of mysterious, I would suppose, you know what I mean? But it's never really been talked about. And again, I'll bring it up. On August 8, 1972, Machen was found dead in his pajamas after falling from his window in the mission district of San Francisco. Whatever hex he suffered from persisted until his last moments. Machen lived on the second floor, and where most suffered from broken the most and where most su- might suffer broken limbs, fractures, or concussions. From a two-story drop, the former number one heavyweight contender died from a ruptured liver. There has always been an air of mystery surrounding the actual circumstances of his death. Was it suicide or an accident? His girlfriend at the time, Sherry Tomasini, told officials that the troubled ex-boxer was prone to sleepwalking. Machen suffered from insomnia, a common byproduct of depression, and often took pills to help him sleep. It is hard to imagine anyone thinking a fall from a second-story window would prevail prove fatal. Perhaps Machen was performing some sort of subconscious wish fulfillment when he stepped into oblivion that night. Perhaps he felt he had nowhere to go. I was a fighter for almost 13 years, he once said. It was hard for me to walk into something else after all that time. Machen was 40 years old when he died. Yeah.
1: Ay, 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 dude, yeah. You know, and I mean... It's it's crazy, too, because that, I, I guess, is a pretty decent segue to talk about Zora Foley, since they fought a couple times. Absolutely. And he, had a, he himself had a very strange ending. But, I mean, you know, I'm not trying to, well, actually, this shit, but I do remember reading about not that long ago that, and, of course, now I just turned 40 a couple months ago, and I feel as though... This is probably correct after, you know, feeling myself age and shit that some ungodly fucking percentage of falls like accidents yeah, over six feet, six, six feet, you know, two meters, two yards, six feet are fatal. Like it's some shit like 80 something percent. And I was like, what? That seems like extremely high. But then I thought about it and I'm like, I'm trying to talk about like, just like falling, like tripping. And I'm like trying to make sure I don't break my fucking arm, just tripping to the ground and shit. And I'm like, you know, yeah, falling like six feet and then like your entire body weight. And, you know, I I guess I could kind of see that shit. So anyway, I'm again, I'm not trying to like scientifically it's possible. But I mean, I could I could see that if you fell the right way, it could fuck you up. But still,
0: it's very scary to think about, like imagining that you're that high. Well, like I remember, because you know, me living in New York City, I'm I'm on balcony. I've been on plenty of balconies (laughs) in my life. Yeah, I'm sure. And um, I remember, like my buddy, he lived in a small apartment that had a very small balcony, and like the the height of the thing that was like blocking you from tipping over was not that high, and so I wasn't comfortable standing. I, I really wasn't that comfortable standing over it because it wasn't like we were actually sober when we're outside. and on the balcony usually. It wasn't, like, sitting there. You know what I mean? So I would always make sure I was sitting on a chair just sitting down, like, eye-level to what I was doing. But I just remember one time we were, like, leaning over and looking over the whole thing. And I just, like, leaned over and I slipped slightly and I grabbed on. I just looked. I was, like, we were, like, 16 levels up or something ridiculous. And I'm, like, dude.
1: Yeah, that's death. Yeah. (laughs) But, you
0: know, I'm not a height. I don't like heights at all. So, seeing something like that kind of bugs me i'm just like Geez. that's
1: just like making like my palms sweaty and shit just you describing right. it i'm like <laughs> Ugh, fuck that welcome to the
0: city man but yeah it was unfortunate about nation but this is a good like you said a good segue into another contender because they're all kind of snake bitten in their own way Zara Foley.
1: Yeah, well and they all just kind of intertwine with their careers and you know you uh you know i'll Again, a big reason for that was that Patterson wouldn't fight him or at least wouldn't fight him in short order, you know, and so they all wind up having to beat each other up. Uh, but Zora Foley, dude, he fought from 1953 to 1970. So, I mean, it's not like he had a short career. He fought almost 100 times. Uh And you
0: know, unlikely, I don't have to cut you off, but unlikely yeah. Williams he didn't have a break, you know, like Williams had a break for a couple of years after getting a shot. And then he had to rebuild himself up like Foley, I think fought completely from that time period till the end.
1: Yeah. He was a busy fighter. You know, he, he fought, uh, you know, at a fairly high level too, from fairly early on, kind of like Machen, you know, where he was fighting a lot of these, a lot of the same kind of fighters overall, um, you know, as that Machen was fighting, he had uh, lost a loss to young Jack Johnson, <laughs> said he young jack johnson broke his rib i mean <laughs> sounds in line with what young jack johnson was dealing out you know but so he had a he had a couple of early losses but otherwise went on a fairly extended streak uh you know where he he went without a loss or without a big loss
0: yeah you know another one of those guys that like you you know back in the 50s and the in the mid to late 50s you had your middling contenders you had your gatekeepers and just you know tough guys they had to go over the hump like young jack johnson um i think machin not made excuse me we're talking about zora foley now zora foley i believe for that fight had an injury pre-existing injury with his rib or something going on into it and they told him beforehand that they didn't want him to fight and he you know he ended up going through with it and um because of it, like, is it, you know, his injured ribs and Johnson being such as the brute and all the way he was, you know, he got injured and ended up getting stopped because of it. But his other loss before that was a guy that we brought up before Johnny, Johnny Summerlin, who was another contender from that time period, who Patterson and D'Amato made sure that um they had nothing to do with it because that would have been a fight that would have been a lot more tougher than say, a, um uh, we already said Tom McNeely, who was another middle contender, um, Cut and shoot Harris. Yeah,
1: Roy Harris. Yeah,
0: yeah. (laughs) right. So, (laughs) notice a pattern here too, and I don't mean to bring the race thing, but like a lot of those dudes were just white guys too. That like they would find.
1: Well, you know, and like that's popular
0: fighters. You know what I mean? Like popular fighters, and like Roy Harris.
1: You brought up up Jack Johnson earlier. I mean, and Jack Johnson knew that that you know beating up on a white dude was going to be a lot more money than you know.
0: All right, look, Roy Harris wasn't a bad fighter compared to some of the others Patterson defended against. Right, yeah, He McNeely.
1: was actually a pretty decent fighter. He's just I mean, goofy, but.
0: Exactly. Yeah, cut and shoot. I mean, they, they, you got to play on him being a goofy Texan. That's fine. But, like, he was a decent fighter. Tom McNeely, not so much. Pete Radenmaker was... was a decent fighter, but he was an amateur. He had no business yeah, with a heavyweight title as a pro. Um, Tommy Jackson was just an eccentric fighter, but he was decent.
1: Like, you
0: know, you got you got to look at it, got, but these guys were not Johnny Summerlin. These were not Zora Foley. These yeah, were these not, were
1: actual good fighters.
0: These were, like, very good fighters that had a good chance of knocking Patterson on his, you know, on his caboose, as um, the late uh, Keith Mullins once said, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, you move on, like, you know, he was fighting the same thing. The same, like, maybe not the same consistency as Eddie Mason, who was fighting top guys back to back to back. But, like, he's fighting good fighters like Wayne Bethia, if you go through his record right now, you know, Duke Sabadong, who, not a top guy, but a dude who had been around the block and a really massive individual for his time period, all the way until 1958, like you said, when he fights Eddie Machen. And they both just, you know, you're like, damn it. <laughs> like, all you needed was one of those guys to really make an impact in that fight because they both shown flashes of brilliance. And with them, um, machin being undefeated and um zoro foley only having a couple of losses and both of them having you know slight asterisks next to them maybe it would be like okay this is going to prove the top guy and they just blew it if it, it's all your indiscretion, it's on youtube i believe that first fight is on youtube i watched like three rounds and just decided i wasn't going to deal with it anymore but <laughs> if you can if you can stomach it by all means go for it but Yeah, it was going to, you know, it was another one that like once something like that happens, he becomes snake man because now the public's not clamoring for you to fight Patterson because you put on such an egg in that fight. And it's like, well, what are you going to do if you fight him? And from there, he's winning, but he's also getting kind of job too. Like he knocks out uh, the aforementioned Rademacher, who Olympic gold medalist and in a big, somewhat, not even somewhat, like very controversial time he was able to negotiate his way which Damato was more than happy to oblige with to, um, challenge for the heavyweight championship in his pro debut. And so after, you know, Patterson getting off the canvas, was able to knock out Rademacher. Um, he decided to continue with his career because I think at first he said that had he beaten Patterson, he was going to retire. He was like, yeah, I'm going to beat him, knock him out, whatever. And then I'll retire immediately after losing, he decided to continue on and, um, He had a couple of decent wins, but by any time he stepped up, he got beat up. And this is one of the first times that Zora Foley, probably feeling a little resentful for getting passed up by a novice as a pro, decided to turn on the anger issue and beat the shit out of Rademacher and stopping him. (laughs) So,
1: he had Um, every right,
0: didn't you say?
1: Hell yeah, dude. I mean, (laughs) Rademacher was, like, not a bad fighter, but, you know, this fucking pro debut, dude. Damn.
0: Like, I've been toiling along with six, almost sixty pro fights fought. Everybody that needs that that I've been thrown against, then screwed over because he was just screwed against Henry Cooper right before that. Well, actually, no, he's going to get screwed right after this fight. Then like things like that, and you know he just and he's like, what the fuck?
1: Yeah, Henry Cooper, you know, beloved British fighter even to this day, but also uh you know for good reason. Uh, he won he won the uh, Lonsdale belt outright three times which is, I believe still a record in British boxing still hasn't happened since then. And is probably unlikely to happen again. And, uh, you know, he was the British champion. And I think for a time, he was also the European champion. And that was at a time when that those things actually meant something. And, uh, In any case, yeah, dude, you know, uh, he was also a good, hard-hitting fighter. The problem was that I think in every single loss of his, he got cut to fucking ribbons just to shit. I mean, great fighter, but man, if you touched him, he bled. And that was a big, big problem. Uh, It was a big problem against Zora Foley, too. Zora Foley cut him up pretty good, and Henry Cooper wound up winning a controversial decision despite getting cut up.
0: Yeah, it was a bad one. I know that like that was one fight that Zoller, uh Foley felt reading a there's a book out there, like a small biography book that you can find. And um foley felt that, you know, he got job in that one. And a lot of people did too. He dropped Cooper, like you said, he sliced him up. More or less, I guess, was a control for more of the fight and you know, being that there in Cooper's backyard, he got job. And that was the bad look that followed these guys, you know what I mean? So at that well, point he do that go ahead.
1: I was just going to say that was kind of like the that was the story of his career. And it wound up also being kind of like how they characterized him after his death, too, that he was like the hard luck guy that he just had bad luck.
0: So he he strings up a bunch of wins after that. You know, I mean, kept very busy and until by 1960, who does he have to run into, (laughs) you know, the juggernaut of that entire era Sonny Liston?
1: Everybody and, got funneled to Sonny, dude. Poor guys. At some
0: point or another, because you want Patterson, but Liston wanted Patterson. And you know, and everybody I think kind of knew all the contenders knew that Sonny was the baddest one of the group. Like they all knew it. And they all knew that at some point, since they were gonna get a shot at Patterson, they were gonna have to fight Liston, regardless if they wanted to or not. It just had to happen. And so um <laughs> And all those guys that were like, you know, we talked about them and they were more than deserving. Liston just trashed them like they were nothing. Cleveland Williams kind of get to the third round against Liston and um, Zora Foley didn't last much better either. There's no footage of this fight. I've read about it. Um, someone, I think on Bo- the, old, the old now defunct website, boxing.com, someone had written about the fight and said that for three rounds it was actually really exciting. Because Foley like fought his ass off and tried as hard as he could, but he just you know wasn't going to do shit against Liston, (laughs) like any of those guys would. You know they're going to try, they're going to try their hardest, but
1: yeah, I mean in just running into a brick wall, what are you going to do? You know what I mean it's it is what it is, dude. And Liston was the Liston was, I guess the gatekeeper for far too long before he was the champion. He's on
0: that of Lane stuff, man. Like you're just gonna walk into a dude who's just gonna beat you into a bludgeon. And he
1: was hungry. He was, yes. and he was mad. You know, he was mad.
0: And he deserved. Mad. He we deserved the title fight more than any of those guys.
1: And, and, and he was not about to let any of them, you know, whoop his ass on national TV. It Wasn't gonna happen.
0: Especially someone like Zora Foley. I love Foley to death, but I mean, Foley was just too mild mannered to do anything. And two much of a counter puncher quite you know laid back fighter to do anything against a dude like Liston like he was gonna be forced to fight I'm sure he landed a couple of punches like Cleveland Williams did and so on but nah man you know Liston just treated him just thrashed him like he did with everybody You gonna beat Liston in 1960 so that um it it was always like a little bit of consistency you know he loses the Liston comes back and he, you know, wins a wins a bunch of fights against stuff like that, and then loses to of a to all people, um, Alejandro Laverante, who another fighter who would have an ill fate, you know, a few years after that, after he got killed himself in the ring, didn't he?
1: Yeah, he had fairly at the time unheralded Argentinian dude, uh, you know, but like not not unlike Alex Miteff, there was kind of like small waves of Argentines that would make their way up or whatever, and yeah, Leverante just kind of came out of nowhere and got that win, and then a few years later, it got killed, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, so you know, like, he was one of those guys, like, he was a long-time contender because he just kept on fighting from there, like, what else was he going to do? You know, he was a family man, he had a, a family to support, he had a few kids, he had a loving wife, and this was his profession. You know, he wasn't going to go and do anything else. Like boxing was what he knew. And he and back then, Pat, like you can attest to this dudes. Even if you would lose a couple of fights here and there, you would still considered a, a contender. You didn't have to be a top contender. You would still be in the top 10 though. Like ring bag is yep. in there to you if you had lost a fight or two, because you were so active and all it took was just another win over a fellow contender, which was pretty, pro, pretty, you know, um, common back then to put you right back into the mix. And that's what kind of what happened. He loses to Alejandro Leveronski.
1: <laughs> he um
0: uh, wins a couple of fights, then he fights rematch with Henry Cooper. Obviously, he's pissed off from the first fight that they had it. So this time, in a rare uh, showcase of his aggression, he knocks the shit out of Cooper in two rounds and just, you know, bludgeons him. And he's feeling good. So this the early sixties. Um, he's still a contender, but it's he's stuck in a in a in a flux where how is he gonna become champion? You know, by this point, Floyd Patterson has been bludgeoned by Sonny Liston. Sonny Liston had already just knocked your dick, you know, knocked you in next Wednesday. So how are you going to make this and, like, try to parlay this to become a heavyweight champ? It's going to be very difficult. But, again, you know, he's still just going to keep on plugging along and try to get the paydays that he can. But the inconsistency shows up again because for a few wins, then he ends up losing to a guy like Doug Jones. You know, Doug Jones was a good contender, but it's like, you know, and then...
1: For, for there, whatever reason, he and Doug Jones matched up well, and they made for like you know a, a good action. But like at the same time, good. you probably yeah. don't want to make good action with Doug Jones, you know? Like you you want to be above that level.
0: Absolutely, like yes, Jones was a guy that gave Muhammad Ali fits, and you know he fought for the light heavyweight championship, and you know fought a host of other contenders and Hall of Famers, whatever. But he was at that certain level where if you are going to go in anywhere in your career and, like, really doing something and going to step down to the next level, you were probably going to beat him. It might not be, like, a dominating fight because he was a tough-ass guy, but, like, <laughs> you were going to beat him comprehensively enough. And so, fully beats him, and then his inconsistencies himself gets up knocked out in the rematch. It's like, you know, it shows you where his level's at. That being said, he, you know, he still has a win. He still gets a win over George Chavalo. Um, he ends up beating a very young and raw Oscar Bonavena. Um, you might have some input on that fight.
1: Yeah. I mean, there, there wasn't really, I, I'd actually haven't read the wiki on it, but I could tell you it's basically, you know, Bonavanna was cocky. He was undefeated. Uh, he had just come to the U S and on top of that, like you know, people will, I don't, I don't know if it's out yet. The bone of the Ringo for star plus the, the new series, but people will learn. He bit Oscar Bonavanna, <laughs> In the Pan Am games in 1963, I believe, he wound up getting disqualified because he bit a dude named Lee Carr. And so he, he got disqualified. And after getting disqualified, he was uh suspended by the Argentine Boxing Federation. And so after he was suspended, he went to the US. And so he turned pro in the US and you know, thought he was hot shit, thought he was doing real great, and then ran into you know, ran into Zora Foley, who Still had plenty left, you know. He was yeah. definitely not, you know, shot or by any means, and just basically walked Bonavana around the ring, dude, and just had his way with him. You know, easily just whooped his ass because Bonavana had two left feet. You know, he he was really clumsy, he was kind of awkward, and he made that awkward style work for him in some fights. But at the same time, you know, for like a classic boxer, he was pretty easy to handle, and that's exactly what Zora Foley did was he handled his ass. And, you know, uh, Foley had a few a few of those kinds of performances left in him. You know, he uh, Bob Foster, when Bob Foster was trying to, you know, periodically make his way up to heavyweight and say like, oh, okay, I got these light heavies handled. Let me go up to heavyweight. Boom. Nope. Sorry, buddy. Get back down there. That right. happened a couple times to him. And that was one of the times was, you know, Zora Foley wound up uh, beating Bob Foster. So, you know, that, set him up you know against these kind of like b-level uh guys or i mean at the time b-level guys wound up setting him up for a shot at muhammad ali you know not the a famous shot at muhammad ali in 1967 but uh as you kind of mentioned earlier a lot of zora story was that he was a quiet guy he was a nice guy he was kind of like you know gee golly gosh you know type of guy and that was a little bit of the story behind the ali fight too
0: Oh, absolutely. Like, Ali was, back then, Ali was at his most braggadocious, and he found a way to, like, antagonize all of his opponents, and make fun of him, and all this other stuff, right? And he couldn't say anything bad about Foley. You know, he couldn't, because Foley was... Yeah, he wouldn't
1: play the game, yeah.
0: Yeah, Foley wouldn't play the game with him, you know? And then I remember, um, there was, like, because it's, again, I forgot the name of the book. I have it on my phone. I'd have to, like, find it. But, like, there was... They they go into they document the fight pretty you know go in depth pretty well about it but like a couple of things they talk about is that like in the pre-fight interviews because this is still the late sixties um, it's a little bit of controversy that Muhammad Ali changed his name from Cassius Clay to Ali people still like play what's my name game and yeah and all that stuff right that was like a common theme with opponents the and,
1: and reporters would jab at him too like they would yeah. they would say like oh so what do you, what what do you think about this Muslim thing you know shit like yeah, that yeah, they would yeah, be yeah, like yeah. oh my exactly. god
0: and. Zora Foley, they asked Foley, they're like, so what Ali? they had a press conference and they're like, oh, you know, what do you, uh, what do you think about it? What do you call Ali? I think that's his name. And he said, what do you call him? He goes, I call him Muhammad Ali. And Ali told him, he's like, yeah, thank you, brother. And Foley said something to the effect of, he was like, listen, Ali is a Muslim. He was like, I'm a Baptist. I believe in this and I do that he believes in his religion, like, I have no problem with what they believe, like, he's cool, you know, like, we all good, <laughs> like, I'm not, he was like, I had no qualms with what he's, what he's about, or what he wants to do, and Ali respected him for that, Ali was like, you know, this, he was like, Zora he's a very nice, he was like, a very nice guy, he's been a long pro for a long time, he's so respectful, every time, this is what he said, He's every time I see him, he's always coming up to me. Thank you for the opportunity champ. Thank you, Mr. Ali. I really appreciate you giving me a title fight. He was like, how can I get mad at a man like this? He was like, he's so sweet. <laughs> and it's, that's true. That was like his personality. He's fully wasn't sucking up. He was just, you know, for a guy, they had been through so much, went through the Patterson era the way he did, been shunned, had to fight Sonny Liston and all these other contenders that no one else wanted to fight because Custom Auto made sure that Patterson didn't have to fight them. And now at the tail end of his career, when he knows he's probably past it and is not gonna have a good chance of beating an Ali at his absolute peak, and he's finally getting a, a title fight at Madison Square Garden. Yeah, I'm I'm sure he's still hyped. You know what I mean? Like this is its own little Rocky story because he come he came from um what part of Arizona did he come from? Meza or something like that?
1: Uh I wanna say Chandler.
0: Chandler, yes, Chandler. You're absolutely right. Chandler, Arizona. And that's not that's not a huge place and he was one of their more popular um residents at that time so like any place where you come from a small community when someone like that (laughs) challenge for the heavyweight championship of the world especially against a person like ali and when the title is still back then meant more than it did than any other time you know what i mean like that was a big deal yeah you're gonna get the key to the city yeah you're gonna get a lot of publicity going around yeah you're gonna get the entire population around you rallying behind you like it's it's big you know yeah. And um, Foley, to his credit, actually put up a decent fight against Ali. You know, Ali was one of those guys at Lake, especially back then. If he didn't have an agenda against you and you didn't really push his buttons in terms of him wanting to beat your ass, he would kind of fight to the level of how you fought. You know what I mean? Like, he would go through the motions and kind of play along a little bit. Eventually, he'd, like, you know, get serious and take you out. But at the same time, for the first few rounds... Yeah,
1: he wasn't trying to humiliate you
0: exactly he would kind of go along with it and you know give you a little bit of success here and there it was just almost until you decide to like really start pushing on the buttons and he's like all right time to stop playing time to take your ass out and that's what he did with foley and um i think i told you about this on the box message boards on the history on the history part of the message boards there was a there was a thread that went about three pages long for some reason people questioning if Zora Foley took a dive against Muhammad Ali when they fought for the title because of how exaggerated he fell when he was dropped. And It is an exaggerated fall. Ali hits him with like a combination. It doesn't seem like it's that hard, but it's solid enough. And Foley dropped like he was shot face first and just kind of laid there, you know what I mean? And yeah. you know, I earlier in the, yeah, I think earlier in the fight, he dropped like that too and then kind of hopped up like randomly. So it kind of, you know, it looks a little weird, but If you look at other parts in his career, that's kind of how he got dropped, man. Like, he didn't take punches well. If he got hurt, he got really skittish, and sometimes he got fucking flatlined.
1: And, you know, too, there's also, like, I guess, different levels of, like, a dive or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's... Because it's like, you know, could Liston have gotten up against Ali in the rematch? I'm sure. I'm sure. Did he want to? Fuck no. He was, like, bro, one part
0: Where you see Liston he leans, like, he gets up, he kind of looks around while he's on the canvas, and then he sees that things are all chaotic, and he seems to kind of fall over again, because, yeah. of them. like, what am I going to do here? Like, <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's like, what? why, why, why am I going to get up? You know what I'm saying? So, like, I, so does that mean he took a dive? No, and it's, I think, similarly, you know, like, there are instances where, you know, could, could so-and-so fighter have gotten up? Probably looked like the look on their faces that they could have gotten up, but they didn't, they chose not to whatever you know what i'm saying it's not me but but i get it though you know and it can lead to uh it can lead to situations where certain fights are like oh i don't know it's kind of fishy i don't think that's all that fishy dude i think it was just muhammad ali feeling you know the fight was over so he ended the fight but um
0: Absolutely. And, it's, and it's sad because the same thing with cleveland williams these were guys that should have gotten title shots years before that like he had no business i mean well he had all the business getting a title shot in 67 he just i mean he earned that but he had he clearly should have gotten another shot i don't know seven years before that yeah eight he, years was, before.
1: he had almost 100 fucking fights you know what i'm saying and then i think the proof positive of where he was in his career was he came back and he kept fighting but then he he dropped a decision to brian london <laughs> and with all yeah, due respect mr really london really
0: bad. <laughs> yeah,
1: with all due respect. But he, I mean, dude, I've seen video. He's not a good fighter. He wasn't a very good fighter. So, I mean, yeah. you know.
0: I mean, Brian London's most known for just getting obliterated by Muhammad Ali and others by that. Like, he's just, yeah, he was not Yeah,
1: he came from a fighting family, bless him, but not a super great fighter. And so, if you're dropping a decision to Brian London, I think that says a lot about where you are in your career. Um, yeah. You know, and... <laughs> For whatever yeah, reason, no. Oscar Bonavena also wanted some revenge against them that he wound up getting and, and at Luna Park too, the legendary venue in Buenos Aires. But still, you know, at, at that point it was just kind of like I think it was just for formality. You know, I don't think that it was it really meant all that much to, to defeat Zora Foley at that point, you know?
0: No, because by the time he fights Mac Foster in nineteen seventy, Foster was The young, I mean, Foster had already lost to Jerry Corey, but he is also uh, that young, super just monster puncher that was kind of wiping out the rest of the old stand-ins from the 50s and the late 60s. Kind of guys like Cleveland Williams and um, Zora Foley, for example. You know what I mean? Guys like that, like Eddie Machen. Well, he didn't fight Eddie Machen, but I'm just saying like those guys, they all fought someone. From that era of like the early 70s, that just like took them out for good. That was like, hey, man, your, your pass is in the past. It's over now, you know? And that was Foley's last one. You look at it and it shows that I've never seen the fight. He got knocked down six times in one round in the first round. Like, that's.
1: Yeah, I'd say it's time to go. <laughs> I
0: mean, all only that. That's just some brutal mas- masochist like shit that you just. That's a referee that's just standing there with like blinders on his eyes going, huh? Dude, who's gonna allow someone to get a drop six times in a month? Yeah,
1: how would that's yeah, that's a kind of kind of a lot. How would what's the score after that? Fucking like 10-3? I don't even like...
0: know because it's 10-6 <laughs> after if you get dropped three times, right?
1: I mean, I guess, yeah. I mean <laughs> what, is it, what would that be 10-3? It's like a yeah, at some point you gotta stop because it's just you can't mathematically win. <laughs> so yeah, if that was that's a, a
0: lot. If that's a 10 rounder you'd have to win the next like seven or eight rounds to even like salvage a draw. Yes. That <laughs>
1: <way>. <laughs> yeah. He better not get punched again. Fuck.
0: I mean, Jesus Christ, man. 10, yeah. three.
1: Yeah. It's kind of brutal. So, yeah, I mean, well, and you could see, yeah, it was, it was time for him to retire, but you know, his story doesn't end there because. a How couple. Of, close? <laughs> oh man. It's, it's wild. I had to go look it up myself. It It, it wasn't really that tough to find. The only, the, the the thing that was kind of tough to find because it was in a weird place was the autopsy report. So you can obviously see where this is going. But um, so the official story, according to the police, was that Zora Foley went with a childhood friend to a hotel. And he, his childhood friend, his childhood friend's wife, and they and his wife's friend were all having drinks, and at like 1 a.m. they went out to the hotel pool. They went to go fuck around, I guess, drink, go into the pool. And that at some point Zora Foley went to grab his friend and throw him into the pool. And in the act of doing that, slipped and smashed his head on the side of the pool. And that one of the women had gone in running to the hotel manager to call the police or an ambulance and that they did and that they came and that the hotel person had said that they saw several holes on Zora head and that, uh, you know, the official cause of death, death at that time was some sort of, you know, blow to the head. Um, but the the discrepancy between what the hotel worker said about seeing multiple holes on his head was what raised questions. Yes. Yeah. And then uh, so several days later, it took a while for the autopsy report to come out. Why, I don't know, which, again, also kind of makes it seem weird, but it's not necessarily abnormal. Sometimes it can take a bit. Uh, And the autopsy report said that officially he had one hole in his head and it might have looked like multiple or he might have had blood or something like that, and that it was the single blow to the head that wound up causing some sort of like cerebral hemorrhage or some shit like that, and that's what killed him. But even so, it's just strange because he was apparently, as you said earlier, he was happily married, he had kids so nobody knows why he was out and nobody knows why he was in the part of town that he was in nobody knows why they were at this hotel nobody knows why his wife wasn't with him like
0: they found out so the that that book that was that was written you can i think you can order it so i'm sure if you google it it's out somewhere but like when i read it and the guy the guy who wrote it um Similar to what you would do, Pat. You know what I mean? He he became like a psychopath and just started went to a library and just started pulling <laughs> through foot in like just microfilms of hours and hours of hours of stuff because you need it. Like you get it, man. You need to get At the first.
1: Answer. I was like similar to me, psychopath, and I'm like, no, that's true. You got it. In no, yeah, a good, good <laughs> I, say, I say that I say <laughs> that
0: in respectful, like a psychopath in a yeah, good yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Not you know what I mean? Like, um, you're there to get answers. Like you're a fucking researcher, and that's a, and that's a respectable thing to do. And being researchers. And being a researcher, especially a historical researcher, um regardless if, it, regardless if it's boxing or whatever, um, you got to do some dirty work, man. Like, and it's going to be arduous, like headache-like work where you're going to have to go to some library or some back room where you're going to get some dust allergy. And you're going to have to pull through newspapers and microfilms and all kinds of stuff because what you're looking for is not really accessible. And you know it's there. But you just know it's going to take forever. And, and the people are just like, well, if you really want to do it, go for it. We need some spring cleaning, you know, some spring cleaning anyways. Have fun. And you, the guy spent hours upon hours upon hours just pulling through films and films and night, all these different things, trying to find anything that he could. And then he was finding these things. And then he finally found, the, like, the police reports of what he was looking for. And like you said, the autopsies of what he was, like, trying to find and it was like um and then from interviewing the family and all that he started putting things together and zora foley had a good friend i think his name was artist was the first name i don't remember his last name
1: i i think that was his name yeah i
0: artist was his first name i'm not even looking at anything but his first name was artist
1: i'm about to tell you right now but go ahead
0: and you know they were boys whatever And like you said, they were at a hotel that day, but what was, but what happened was Zora Foley, I believe in the book they said, put, um, made a reservation under a, under a different name. Okay. So he put a, he put a reservation under a different name. And the reason why he did that is like you alluded to, even though he was married with children, he was fooling around.
1: Yeah. Artist Broom. Artist Broom. Exactly. Artist Broom was the yes. dude's name. Yeah.
0: I was his friend. Artist Broom was, and what made this interesting too is that Artist Broom was a sketchy individual with a very sketchy past. The guy had a criminal record, had a lot of stuff going on with him. And if you look at Zora Foley, you'd be kind of surprised they do hang out with a character like Artist Broom. So that's what made it kind of like, hmm, what went down here? Because yeah,
1: it's, it, well, and that's what, and that's almost makes it even like sketchier in my opinion. Because like, it's Broom like.
0: Was a he wasn't a good person. There was a lot going on with him. I can't off the top of my head remember exactly all the things he was into. but It was, yeah. a, lot. It was a lot of backdoor stuff.
1: Well, and, and the fact that Foley was so like squeaky clean, that's what I'm saying is that makes it even weirder that I'm like. Well, Ooh. also Broom
0: seemed like by all accounts, he seemed like the type of guy that he, he knew he was going to be hanging out with someone that was like a minor celebrity like Foley was, especially in his town. You definitely want to cling on to him, become his boy. You know what I mean? Be known. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm friends with Foley. Yeah, whatever. Easy, yeah. like Mike Tyson had them. Everybody got their hanger arms. and yeah. that became like Foley's bro, though. So Foley, I believe, did an assumed name. He put himself under, you know, a different, a different name because he was fooling around. And I think his son, Zara Foley, one of Zara Foley's kid, even said as much. He was like, "My dad was probably was fooling around." You know, a lot of people were doing that back then. Even though you got a family, you got everything like that. And still was happening. So they go to the pool and artist Broom's wife was interviewed because she was there that night. And she talked about it. She remembered that. She remembered it. And mm-hmm. she said that, yeah, they were, like, fooling around at the pool. They were, like, kind of slipping, and then as he was trying to shove artists in there, he slipped himself, and he said that, and she said that in that pool, there was, like, a divider in in the middle of it somehow that, like, made, like, the lower end section, the bigger end section, stuff, whatever it was, but that divider, they think that's we smacked his head on that somehow And like, you know, and <clears throat>
1: yeah.
0: of himself. but um, it was just because of all the circumstances surrounding get him hanging out with a sketchy guy like artist room was a former convict, him putting himself under a different name. So it was hard to find out where he was actually being located and what the hell was going on. There was so many things that like, you it, it, thank God, there were still people still alive that could corroborate some certain things. And clearly didn't have an agenda trying to like you know trying to push a narrative there they were just telling the truth that it looks like it really was just an accident you know what i mean just with a lot of like mystery surrounding it but it was just a stupid act yeah it was a stupid act it was just a really scary sad yeah just an
1: unfortunate unlucky accident
0: unfortunate unlucky accident exactly
1: and that's actually that exactly wound up being the narrative for his life too afterwards when everybody was writing up you know And Pat,
0: Uh, I guess you could say that for a lot of these guys in this whole generation, man, just an unfortunate, sad accident with their life.
1: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Uh, Absolutely. And I mean, um, uh, one of like the little anecdotes that one writer, one local Arizona writer had told after his death in the paper, because like I said, I looked this shit up probably not nearly as much as the author guy. But, you know, I spent like maybe about a half hour just looking it up for like, you know, uh, like about a week of time or so, maybe a little more. In any case, one of the anecdotes that one of the writers had said was that uh, Zora Foley had been around for so long in Chandler and this, and around this part of Arizona was that when they had first hooked up, that uh, this guy who had been involved in his early career at some point, Zora Foley's early career, they both went into some kind of department store or whatever, and this dude was going to go grab something, and he told Zora Foley, go grab a soda and I'll be right back. They, and they were like, we don't serve black people here. Mm-hmm. And that was early on just in his career. And that about 15 years later, about uh, this was about the time of his death, about 15 years later, that same street that that department store was located on was on Zora Foley Street.
0: That's awesome. And they actually, uh, they named a park after him, too, out there, I remember, too.
1: So, I mean, in, you know, there are, there probably aren't a whole lot of boxing celebrities out of Chandler, Arizona, but nonetheless, Absolutely you know. Absolutely
0: not, but I know people like he was, I think they still, I think that park still stands or Foley Park.
1: He, like by by all accounts, I'm not. You know, I'm. I don't know. I'm not here to judge what if somebody's cheating on their wife or whatever. You know, you that's,
0: know it, it, that's the last thing I would ever worry about. And I, you know what? And I, I hate to bring up uh, the Creed movies right now, but the fact that they made that like weird narrative in the first film. You, did you watch the first Creed film? No. <laughs> it, it's okay, man. It's, nah, you're
1: not spoiling I, nothing for me. It's
0: I, I, I know I'm not. I'm not even trying to. But like they they had a, a clip on sports center where they were like talking about oh you know so apollo creed cheating on his wife you know and had Don it had adonis and blah, blah blah so what does this mean now what what does this how does this represent oh, do we look at him differently like what every you know this
1: i'm i don't like it i'm not going to celebrate it no but at no the same man. time i mean i'm you know. just
0: saying we can't act like yeah, this yeah. Is possible, you know what i mean
1: we can't act like it's unique either Yeah,
0: especially in terms of celebrities and sports celebrities
1: yeah again I don't like it not going to celebrate it but
0: I'm, I, exactly I hate that I mean what no we don't celebrate that at all whatsoever but sports celebrities it's actually I hate to say it but it's rare when you find a guy who's faithful to his wife over the years as opposed to someone who you yeah, know as gets much as
1: these fools go. are traveling and, yeah
0: oh please yeah man come on
1: yeah it's bad but it's not surprising and so i mean and that's kind of that would, where
0: that's how it ended with zora foley man you know and like yeah, there's there's some there's a few like we said we could probably end up doing a 2 part out of this because i think we're
1: gonna yeah because gonna
0: have to man because look how much we just covered I, on the three main ones right here <laughs> I,
1: I know i'd actually just now looked up at the clock and i was like oh jesus we've actually you know but that's just how that's often how it winds up going we have a couple other of you know things we need to catch up on as far as shows, but we're definitely gonna have to come back to this one
0: dude I mean For they're sure. like okay yeah, there's still guys like Nino Valdez we still have to cover Sonny liston even though he ended up eventually becoming champion um he was probably public enemy number one when it came to being avoided
1: so. yeah the name of the game here is like how many of these fighters' careers, how much of their careers was lost because they were just waiting
0: yeah, all of them and that's what makes them a true lost generation. As opposed to the '80s generation, where those guys were able to become champion, but
1: they yeah, were under the control- titles were just fucking going all over. Everywhere.
0: Yeah, 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 and they were they became a lost generation more so because they were all under uh, the control of Don King, and yeah, you know, and cocaine, of cocaine, and yeah, <laughs> the '80s substances. You know what I mean? Yeah, these guys became a lost generation because they were shunned from even sniffing at the title because of a psycho manager who made sure that anybody who with an inkling of talent had a, a chance of beating Patterson um, was somehow aligned with the mob, even if they weren't and therefore had no chance. And then you had all these other fighters um, being force-fed down the public's throat to, to fight Patterson for the belt. And that's why Patterson remains probably the only heavyweight champion who had a better post-fight career than he did as being champion.
1: That's true. That's a good point, too. Yeah.
0: You know, which is crazy to think. Like well, hey, most yeah. guys, when they're champion, that's when they're peaking in their career. Patterson had a better career as post-fight champ, post-career. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, as the deadest champion, because that's when he decided, you know what, fuck custom Auto, I'm out of that, and I'm gonna like show the public I'm not afraid of these guys, and went to the lions then and fought a lot of beasts. You know.
1: Yeah, and had a lot of fun fights, too. A couple it, of those were, like, fight-of-the-year-level fights.
0: and was successful in them. He beat Chavallo in that fight of the year. He beat Bonavena um, before at the tail end of his career. Yep. Um, you know, he got robbed against Jimmy Ellis when he should have been the first three-time champion, for example. Like, yeah, man, you know, Patterson was doing his thing. Ended up fighting Eddie Machen, knocked out Henry Cooper. Like, there was a lot of good fighters he beat during that time.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, dude, you know, I mean, he kind of gets a, I guess we kind of gave him a bad rap, but we didn't mean to. We're just trying to tell the truth. Well, but, you I know, don't,
0: you know, when all I these think, guys what got I screwed. Think, yeah. I got it. We got to put it like this, Pat, before we go, like, this generation, I don't want to put the blame on Patterson because he clearly proved himself to be a guy willing to fight anybody. That's true, yeah. He was the one, he was the one at the end that told, not only Custom Auto, but told America because the Kennedys and other ones, everybody else kind of like, you know, confided in them, hey, don't fight Liston, don't do it, yet yada, yada, yada. And Patterson was like, no, he deserves it. And enough is enough. I don't want it. like, he deserves a title shot more than anybody. I can't do this shit anymore. Like, we can't, you know, deny this man. So to his credit, it's more so customado. That's what I'm yeah. blaming this all on. All right? This is him and his shenanigans because, to a lesser degree, he tried doing the same thing with Jose Torres, but it kind of backfired on him when Torres lost Dick Tiger. So. Yeah,
1: for sure. And well, he thought that's
0: kind Tiger of. was an was undersized, washed middleweight. And he was, oh, yeah, you know.
1: From that. Yeah, found out the hard way to Dick Tiger. is no joke, bro.
0: Yeah, Tiger still was like, yeah, fuck around and find out, bro. <laughs> yeah,
1: one of the greatest boxing names of all time and also a very underrated fighter.
0: Exactly so, you yeah.
1: For sure. Hey, dude, well, I appreciate you, dude. I, we're going to have to come back. We're going to have to do a little bit more of this, but I appreciate you doing. Oh,
0: absolutely, man. You know, I love my lost generation of heavyweights.
1: Hell yeah, man. Love that shit. But hey, everybody who listened in, thanks for all, first of all, for returning. I know it was a trying time, but we're back. I swear, we're back. If you listen in, thanks so much. Uh, whatever podcast platform you listened in on, subscribe, leave us a rating, comment, those kinds of things. Much appreciated if you watched on YouTube hello thank you also subscribe comment reply etc as far as social media goes the knuckles and gloves podcast is also on uh you know we're on twitter of course but we're on instagram and facebook I mean, we're on twitter as long as it lasts i don't know dude there's some weird new change every single day uh, well, i'm not gonna yeah,
0: i on. don't i you know man, whatever I, I retweet your stuff i retweet a couple of things yeah
1: i mean if you talk to me i'll talk back but i don't know about all this whole thing but in the meanwhile regardless we are there so my boy eris pina is there's punch zone eris me patrick connor and there's patrick m connor and say hi we'll say hi back eris we'll talk soon bro
0: good one yeah